Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. And uh, Jamaral, I'm Manila Chan. I don't have quite the intro, but I'm going to go with uh, the mistress in the middle. The mistress in the middle, which is at the unsexy middle. That's right. <laughs> that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Well, the Tom, see, that's the thing, right? It's like. Chan is so short. Well, that was a different one for everybody. So it was like Franzak, Thomas and Franzak. Yeah. Well, the, the funny part is, Fran never had an issue with it. Like, her ego was perfectly fine. It's like, Franzak, that's what it's going to be. And with Shane, it was always Stranahan. I think with Bob, it was Slay oh, Huber. first? Yeah. Like the order of appearance? Well, let me see. It was Austin Pelly. It was Thomas and Pelly, which sounds a little weird. Um, Franzak, for some reason, sounds okay, but maybe because I've said it so many times. Stranahan again. You said it so many it's, times. It's a longer name. Yeah. Oh, so your issue is the name is just, short. So it's, just one syllable. Yeah. Well, that's a cultural thing. Is it? Right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going ber- to berate the shortness of the name in this context. <laughs> I feel like it's a cultural thing. It feels kind of racist to kind of bang, okay. <laughs> bang the name like that. It's like, oh, that name is so inappropriate it's for a title. It's so short for a title. I think it's perfectly fine. And trust me, after saying it for 50, 100 times, you're going to be like, hey, that sounds perfectly normal. We could confuse everybody and go with Chanahan. Chanahan. <laughs> Thomas and Chanahan. They were like, is she, what, what, what was that? What was that? Was the like, amalgamation. Yeah. They, they were like, it feels slightly familiar. Right. And not. But Asian. <laughs> no, but welcome to the show. Um, Minila is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, and we've, let me see, you've done backstory. And you yes. and I have done backstory together. Yes. And so, yeah. So and I've she, been a guest on this show. Yes, you've been a guest on the show A gazillion times. times. Yes. And the audience even asked about you, believe it or not. Oh. When we were having issues and we were trying to figure out who we were going to get, the audience was somewhat skeptical of Austin for several reasons. It had nothing to do with the skill or anything like that. He was just much younger. And so it's like, if you're 20-something, it's like, why is this person here? Ah, uh, I it's see. It's that, right? It's like, why is this because person here? Because these are the grown here? folks exactly. up this early. Only these grown are, folks are up These this are grown early. folks. And often grown folks are the ones who's lived long enough where they have a take <laughs> on this stuff that is, um, uh, you know, contextual. Those of us born in the in the late 1900. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. True. Exactly. Not and in so, the 2000s. <laughs> exactly. I still find that crazy when you start thinking there are adults, Jamaral, walking around right now, old enough to buy alcohol, go travel across state lines, that were born in the 2000s. It is so weird to me because it makes me feel so much older. Because like when you're thinking of like your timeline, 2000 is a demarcation point. Like when you've lived... 9-11. You think of 9-11. Or even 9-11. Right. Yeah, like 2001. Because it's 2001. Yeah. It becomes this kind of demarcation point. And so when you're thinking back, there's certain like 80s feel pretty far back. 2000 doesn't feel as far back. Right. But the catch is, it is. I mean, it's 22 years ago when you think about it. You remember Y2K? Yeah. Remember that? I remember that. I was like, everything is going to fall apart. The world is going to end. I was like, oh my God, the internet thing just started and it's over? People made a rounding error issue, and it was going to take down all of our electronic systems. People don't remember that. Like, people who are younger, they don't entirely remember that. But that was a huge deal. They were like, dude, when yes. 20, when 2000 hits, our technological systems are not going to know what to do. The calendar's on everything. It's going to fall apart. Nobody thought about it's it. It's not going to roll over. Yeah. It's, it's, that's the stuff that they were basically talking right. about. 20- and look, by the way, they're not entirely... 
when you think about it, you have a system that continuously gets built on other systems. Like, I used to do software, right? Right, so, I was gonna say, you're the computer guy. Yeah, you I mean, go I'm in. I'm like, how do I get into my Google Docs? Yeah, yeah, it's like, how does that work? See, I'm bad at that part. I'm better at building those documents. Okay. Yeah, and so, right, like, when you think about it, one system after the next is continuously built on other systems. So you have, let's say, a computer, you have a bit of code. So let's say you start off with C programming language. Okay, very basic. C. C, just letter C. Letter C. Okay. Then you get C++, and this gets to be more object-oriented where you start thinking of software as objects. It's almost like if you think of your real world and you think of how that real world is actually accommodated, and if you needed to kind of drill that down into, let's say, an object in regards to software, you start looking at software as real objects. So it gets a little bit more, you know. Too meta. Okay, it's too meta. Too meta for me already. Think of it this way. If you had a dog and you needed to model that dog in coding, okay, that dog has certain attributes. Like how do you describe it? Right, how do you describe it? Okay. So the dog barks, the dog has four legs as a property, the dog runs, the dog can sit. Like you have, Meaning you have all of these, let's say, um, behaviors associated with a particular object. Okay. And so you try to model those behaviors in a programmatic way. So you call them objects at that point. It's almost like you're looking at these conceptual things as objects. This is getting too, too weak into weeds. But I guess my point is, okay. all of those things are built on other things. And at a certain point, if you have a flaw, Let's say in one thing that you didn't necessarily think about later on. Exactly. What happens to all of the other software later? So when those people are like, hey, man, um, on 2020, everything is going to fall apart because of a rounding error. (laughs) It may not entirely be wrong. Like, it's possible. You see how the glitch can happen. Yeah, you can see how the The glitch glitch can happen. The glitch in the matrix. Yeah, you can see how the glitch. You can see the glitch. Has anyone watched that movie? I have watched that movie. That movie is great. You, you like the new one? I don't know how I feel. Oh, wait, I mean, new one? Oh, that's trash. That's trash. I was, like, I was like, I don't know how I feel it's about trash. that tomorrow. Let, let's, let me go to headlines first. Let me okay, get back to that. Okay, you got it. That is trash. I, I <laughs> did my best not to, like, Hate overly it? rant on that. I've watched it, like, four times, and every time I watch it, I'm like, why did you do this to the Matrix? Yeah. Why did you do this? It doesn't need to be this meta. Like, Agreed. Like, it doesn't need to be where we're. I don't want to do this movie, so I'm going to do a movie about how I don't want to do this movie and how all of you people are looking for something else and I'm not going to give you the exact thing that you want to give. And they're like, oh, it's so clever that she screwed up. The make- That's not clever at all. No. It's not clever. That's an easy out. Give people what they want. Give them the, you know, furtherance of the Matrix. But let's do this. Let's get in the headlines. In the news, I know in the background, they're like, dude, get to the news. Get to the, news. <laughs> the producers are like, move along. Move along. In the news. In COVID news, in an article penned in the New York Times, Microsoft founder Bill Gates said that he believes the fight against the coronavirus pandemic have been more efficient and lives could have been saved if scientists focus more on developing therapeutics alongside vaccines. The billionaire said in the event of a similar pandemic, even if scientists manage to develop a vaccine in 100 days, it would take time to administer it to the population. Also, not everyone who has access to the vaccine would choose to take it, making the availability of therapeutics more crucial. Wrote, great hindsight 2020. Hmm. Um, Bill Gates, good job with that hindsight 2020. Sure, nobody ever thought of that at all. In national news, U.S. Republican lawmaker Daryl Issa, who currently represents California's 50th congressional district, has shed light on the ongoing efforts to investigate the matter of the quote unquote infamous laptop from hell belonging to Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden. During his recent appearance on Fox News, Sunday morning's features, Issa suggested that Hunter Biden's investigation should be followed, quote, all the way to the big guy, unquote, and that it's something they're going to need a special prosecutor for. Quote, in the meantime, we're investigating it. We have the laptop, he added, and the laptop is a treasure trove of obviousness. 
Oh, I love that word, unquote. A treasure trove of obviousness. Yes. I don't think there's been anything that I have agreed with Dara Issa on that he has ever espoused on this. Thousand percent agree. Thousand percent agree. You can't have this conversation to me about how Trump was radically corrupt, how Trump right. and his family members were always corrupt. And by the way, they used to say that without really giving anything for it. It was just right. this, oh, he's so corrupt. And if you're talking to Democrats, it is sacrosanct. It is just, I'm just like breathing. That's all you even have to say. Oh, he's just so corrupt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so, a Trump. Oh uh, yeah, it's Trump. It's a Trump. It's like, he's corrupt. Yeah, I'm going to get lunch today. You want anything else? Like, it's just understood. Baron Trump, 13, yeah. probably barely got his first internet access. Yeah. Probably corrupt. Yeah, but it has to be. He's a Trump. Has to be. He's a babe. He's born that way. He's born he's corrupt. He's coming out of the, the, the sperm cells of Trump. Right. I mean, but if you think about it, though, they have a laptop. Imagine if the situation was reversed. Um, Biden is in office. Oh, Trump is in office. His kid gets is a crackhead. Don Jr. Don say. Jr. is a crackhead. And Don Jr., for whatever reason, can't keep his hands on his laptops. Multiple. Three of them. Just all over the place. All over the place. Just keep leaving them all over the place. And to make it worse, when they open up the laptop, there's him on crack. There's him measuring M&Ms on his penis to figure out how many he can get. Not an easy skill, by the way. I still get credit have for that. I not looked at the photos. That oh, much. you haven't seen the photos? I oh, you got to see the photos. You got to uh, see the photos. I, tomorrow. He's having this loving conversation with a working girl. Um, all of uh, this stuff is on there. But the one, the most cringe. interesting. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very cringy, right? The, the part that's most interesting, though, is not the salacious parts. It's the parts where you're reading the emails and it's saying stuff like, um, you know, like, um, oh, I give you one example. They were talking about a dinner that was going to take place between Hunter and a Burisma executive. And that basically Biden was going to show up at the meeting. Now, in the Washington Post, for a year, oh, this isn't real. This isn't true. Washington Post is like, yeah, the FBI is looking into this. This seems to be cooperated, et cetera. It's like, wait a minute. What do you mean it seems to be cooperated? That email basically says, thank you for introducing me to your dad. Right. I mean, unless Hunter Biden is a different dad, it sounds like Biden met these people. That's a big deal. And as what he made reference to, the big guy stuff, was this kind of reference yeah, again to Joe Biden. It, it is a hello, Captain Obvious. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And so... He says, right, um, this is something they should be investigating, especially if they're going to spend all the time investigating Trump. And so, you know, I'll just leave it on that. Let's go to international news. Ukraine is ready to fight for its land for 10 years. The country's president, Vladimir uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, said in an interview with CNN, quote, we want to liberate our country to take back what belongs to us. We will be fighting the Russian Federation for 10 years to take back what is ours. We may choose this path, unquote, Zelensky said. He urged the West to speed up arms delivery to Ukraine. Quote, we need the equipment today or tomorrow, not within two or three months, Zelensky added. But if you're going to fight for 10 years, then what's the rush, buddy? What's Wait, the rush? Is that is that the hard stop, though? Yeah, the 10 years. Are they funded for that long? I, I have is no idea how long they're funded. He just says he's willing or they're going to fight for 10 years. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, look, Russia and some of the people who've been talking about it, I think it was the Nets or Luhansk um, military. They basically said months. Maybe months. I mean, so the, like their uh, time scales are way, way. Right, off. ten years is a long time. We were That's just at the time. top of the hour. We were talking about how long ago uh, Y2K was, which was you know 20 22, years. 22 yeah. years ago. I mean, even half that is astonishingly is a, a, lot. a very long time. Yeah. You start thinking about when Barack Obama was elected. Mm -hmm. That was around was ten like years ago. It was forever ago. Yeah. 
And then you look at fight for that long. And by the way, they're fighting. This isn't like, oh, you're just hosting a show for 10 years where you had to deal with the personality. It's not that. It's not that. We are burning through military equipment, lives, materials, etc. You're not doing that for 10 years. But here's here is one really important part tomorrow is that at, at the whole start of this, right, within within 36 hours, Vladimir Putin had already issued, you know, a very short list of wants or demands. Yes. Right. Very short list. Very, I mean, one, two, three things, right? And it all was predicated around, hey, say you're not going to join NATO, you're going to send back these foreign arms, and we'll talk, yes. right? Like, I'll pull back right freaking now. Well, keep in mind, in the right very now. beginning, it was just that was not going to be part hours. of NATO. Right. That was 36 hours. And then within the first week, there were peace negotiators. Zelensky's people were all on board with trying to broker peace. But then something happened, Jamaral. What happened is the question. Did Victoria Nuland happen? I mean, this is somewhere lost in the Victoria Nuland talk of yeah. these bio labs, and everybody started getting on the bio labs talk. But meanwhile, everybody dropped the ball and looked away about these peace talks. Yes. Zelensky's people in the first week or two had a, had agreed on, on a lot of the same points. Yes. And even the details of this. Yes. Right? But then everybody here around Capitol Hill started talking, oh, biolabs, biolabs. Yeah, that's all fine and dandy. We should look into biolabs. But these peace talks on the table, they, spoke. people had agreed to stuff. Yeah. What happened? Well, Zelensky agreed to stuff. Well, what happened? <laughs> I, I, I personally, happened? I said the Russians offered to fart in a jar. Zelensky is the one that was agreeing to all of a these. A in a jar was made a millionaire of that girl. Yes. From 90 Day Fiance. Yes. Yes. Don't know. <laughs> I almost threw up. You know, one on that one. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, like, one side was offering concessions. I mean, Zelensky basically agreed to everything that Russia was demanding before right. the war started. And it's like, are you serious? Like, within two who, weeks. Who's puppeteering it? Ben. Oh, now that is an interesting that question. Is question. That Who is the question. Who is puppeteering if Zelensky opens his mouth and says, yes, I want peace. Sure, we will back off NATO. We will make reforms to our constitution. Yeah. And then suddenly... But Victoria- Zelensky also wanted an unstart. He wanted a NATO-type engagement of like a, a peace thing for Ukraine, like a security guarantee yes, with NATO nations sort, being NATO. Right. And it's like, dude, nobody's... A, you're losing the war. Let's be clear. B, they're accomplishing their military objectives, meaning they're creating a land bridge um, to the Crimea, basically going through Maripol. They're isolating Donetsk, Lohansk republics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning, until you get to a point where you could stop them in any of these objectives, they are not going to offer you squat. It was only going to be when they accomplish their objectives when they say, okay, let's talk. It's going to be that. And until you could do something militarily on the ground to prevent them from doing what they want, you're not going to get them to negotiate anything like that. But to your point, at one point, he was putting out peace overtures. And so... But something happened. Something happened. What is that something? Well, not to mention, at the point where you're like, oh, there are chemical weapons strikes, and they're this, they're that. I mean, look, part of that is also to add pressure to the peace negotiation from the side of the Ukraine, right? I mean, like, if the if, if they're saying, oh, Russia's committing tragedies or atrocities, are they? Or are they saying, oh, Russia hit the train station? Did they? I mean, all the evidence is pointing to Ukraine on that point, not necessarily in Russia well, um, missiles. We don't know... We don't know, Jamarl, because the other side no investigation. cannot show anything other than what is permitted by, by the, way, the Google overlords. They don't even try. They don't even try. 
Like it's not like the U.S. media is trying to get to the bottom of what's true. They're not even trying. Um, on business today is tax day. Ugh. Tax day. Make sure you file your taxes, and we're going to have a great conversation with Mark Frost about that. And Manila is going to also talk about that. Got and some factoids. Factoids. Factoids are always interesting. Factoids are always interesting. In holiday news, we have Adult Autism Awareness Day. We have Go Fly a Kite Day. International Amateur Radio Day. International Day for Monuments and Sites. National Animal Crackers Day. <laughs> National Transfer Money to Your Daughter's Account Day. That is uber specific. That is uber, uber specific. I'm going to clap for that one. Yeah. Natural Veloprocure. Velocator Day? I have no idea what that is. Velocrapator Awareness Day? <laughs> that sounds like a terrible pharmaceutical. Velociraptor? <laughs> what, what is that? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> All right, Velociraptor Day. Let's just go with it. In 1506, construction of the current St. Petersburg Basilica begins. Wow. 1906, a massive earthquakes destroy San Francisco. In 1949, Ireland becomes an independent republic. Interesting, interesting. In 1951, the European coal and steel community, a precursor to the European Union is established. That is, man, that is fascinating. In 1956, Prince Rainier, third of Monaco, marries actress Grace mm. Kelly. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chance. Many of those are really interesting. So many people don't know the European Union wasn't started as the European Union. It was started as this kind of conglomerate of businesses and everything else. And it started to just kind of move. It was a trade union. Yeah, it was a trade union. what it was. It was a a trade agreement. Yes. And it somehow became a political body. Because oftentimes what happens is if you start one thing, you need something else to substantiate the thing that you basically started. So it's not enough to just say, okay, we're just going to be a trade union. Now, what does that trade union going to do? And what does that trade union need to do? And then it's like, okay, does a trade union have the powers and capabilities necessary to do what it needs to do just to be in a trade union? No, it does not. Hey, maybe we need to expand the currency. Let me tell you this. That right there encapsulates what happens when you give a block of people a little bit of yes. power. Yes. And it keeps snowballing yes. and snowballing and snowballing to where it is now, to where it is literally putting together a new world order. And this is not in the QAnon sense. Or, I mean, I'm literally, I'm talking in literal terms. You now have this governing body that originated as just a, a group of countries that are like, hey, I want to buy some of your lamb meat, right? Like, hey, Ireland, Scotland, you guys have a lot of sheep. I want some lamb meat. Yes. G- can you send us some over here in, I don't know, Lithuania? Yeah. Right? Look, I'm just picking random. Yeah, just random place. But, Romania, Lithuania. That's, that's anyway. what happens, right? You're like, hey, they got good lamb up there. Let's 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 open borders to let's trade some lamb. And then before you know it, in the 20th century, kaboom! You become this giant block of countries that starts bullying other countries that are not in your gang. Yes. Like that, that's really what happens. I mean, l- look at the United States. I would go so far since that was a point though. That was, a that was point. the point. You think you think that in its inception? Because I think what tends to happen is if you could if you confront somebody, well, I don't want to go so far as to say in its inception, but very closely after its inception. Because I think what happens like, is ah, uh-huh, I have an something. idea. We got we something got here. Something. We have a power block. We have something that can project power. And not just something that can project power. We have something that can basically, yeah, you have all sorts of benefits internally to the country and everything else. But if you are thinking, all right, there's China. There is the United States who bullies us around. 
And as individual European nations, we are weak. We're going to get picked off. They're going to create situations where they can play one against the other. All right. Maybe for us to have any chance in this world, we need to unite. I mean, I would say the same thing for Africa would be in good sense, right? It's like at the point where you realize you have these much larger nations, you on some level are going to have to create some kind of organizing body itself to be able to just compete and exist with these other nations that are just much larger. So I wouldn't necessarily put it past in one iota to get just in their head just enough where they're like, you know what? There's potential here. There's potential. And what is, it's like, how do we use this potential? And so, no, I am not going to go to a country and say, hey, let's create an overarching block, kind of like a federal type environment. I'm not going to say that because they're going to tell me no. Right. What it will say is, hey, let's create trade relationships among us and between us. It's like, hey, the trade relationship sounds good. And then you come back later and say, hey, there's a problem with this trade relationship. And in order to make this work, we need to get just a little bit closer together. All right, man. Fair enough. Let's get a little bit closer together. Slow creep. Slow creep. And then it's like, hey, let's just get rid of your local currencies. And let's just use a euro. Hey, I'm not for that. I'm uncomfortable with that. You have plenty of those nations that were uncomfortable with that. Well, and yet, yeah. It still went through. I guess my thing is, like, did they have in their head in the beginning of this, we are going to create an overarching block. But if we tell people that, they're going to say no. Or was it just this slow creep where in each situation, people were able to find a certain degree of advantage that they can get out of moving in a direction? I don't know which one. Um, I do believe at a certain point, it became clear in people's mind this needs to be almost like a federation type thing. Where that happened. From I don't the know. jump. That's just it. I don't know if it was from the jump. Like if you listen to Galloway, Galloway would say in the beginning, yes, they wanted this to be a, meaning they wanted it to be more than what it was. And they knew that the way to get it to that point was to not tell people in advance, but to slow walk it there. That was the way Galloway would explain it. Now, does that mean from day one that I don't know? Does it mean that at a certain point where, let's say, it becomes something else where they're like, yeah, we have a clearer idea on what this can be and we can move it in that direction? I suspect it's more that part where they may start off as one thing, but somewhere along the way, very early on, they realize what can this organization be and what do we need to be to deal with these much, much larger countries? China has, what, 1.3 billion people. India has 1.5 billion. The United States is 300 and something. But again, it's a superpower. And so when you think of Europe, you have these tiny countries in Europe. Okay, well, how do... They compete with these other countries. Like think of the UK, for example. The UK Health Service. Um, the UK Health Service is going to be picked apart by US companies. Couldn't do that when you're part of the European Union because all of those guys had an agreement that you can't play one against the other and that it has to be, you have to deal with the totality of Europe as opposed to individual nations. What happens if you get into the situation where the US is able to pick apart other countries in there in regards to, let's say, um, lamb meat, for example, when many other countries in Europe can't use our products because of um, the low level? I guess my point is, at a certain point, somebody or a group of people had to have the idea of ever closer in the way that Angela Merkel would talk about it. ever closer, ever closer. I mean, yeah, ever closer. Um, at some point, somebody had to get that in their heads. And I guess my thing is, when did that take place? How early was that 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 took place? And I suspect it was earlier than I think many people believe. Yeah, see, that, I, That's my suspicion anyway. I, it may come as a surprise to some people or maybe not. I'm not exactly the most Eurocentric yeah. uh, person or academic. I'm not really an academic. <laughs> I, I'm a nerd that likes to read stuff. Um, but Trust me, that's better off than many of the people who are in media. Well, well, you know, there are a lot of people that are actually academics and have studied this stuff and know way better than me. Yeah. Um, I more or less took interest in the 20th century 
more or less around World War II-ish. Yeah, same here. Well, First World War for me. Yeah, for me it was more World War II because I happen to be a Pearl Harbor baby. Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. Because I know people are going to say, well, you're Asian. I can't tell if you're really right, born right. on Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> right. or... It's like, were you there? Were right. you your mom? Yeah, it's like you, you were conceived on that 70 day. 70 or yeah. like 37 <laughs> or somewhere in between. No. Um, but being having, you know, realized I was a, I was born on Pearl Harbor Day, it as a kid, I realized, okay, well, that's interesting. Like, what does that mean? What what happened? What is Pearl Harbor Day? And yeah. I looked that up and then I started learning a little more and more about European stuff and European history. So I guess my knowledge happened from that. World War II yeah. onward. Um, but there, because there's so much, I know there's people interested in this medieval history and, you know, like the conquistadors and it goes I'm, too far back. Yeah. yeah that's, it goes too far back. That's just too mind blowing and and probably too graphic, you know, throwing people in volcanoes yeah. and stuff. That's not for me, not my jam. Um, I would trust George Galloway. Yeah. He is a very learned man. He definitely knows his stuff. And I don't want to try to replicate exactly what he said, because this was a long time ago where I heard him kind of make, give this conversation. Um, but he would, I think he would agree that at some point it did become, hey, let's use this device for. You know, let's get these people closer together for a larger thing. But let's do this. Let's, in fact, we don't, well, I don't know where we're taking a break. Um, the Matrix. Let's talk about The Matrix for a moment. I only watched the new one once, Jamal. So you've got three more watches ahead of me. I got so. three more watches. Because the first time I watched it, I'm like, what did they do to my movie? That was my first thought. I did, I did write a knee-jerk critique of it. Uh-huh. And what was your critique of it? I was left kind of disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um. I didn't like where it went. This is, you know, it was not, I, I feel like it did not, did not capture the spirit right. of the original Matrix of the 90s people. Yes. The 90s. And it holds right? up really well, even today. I mean, it, look, it, looked, it looked good. I'll say that. And then the characters looked good. And, and it was such a stretch, right? To yeah. like, to like, like link that love story. Like yeah. you really, y'all really want this but love story. But it wasn't story. supposed to be a love story. Like, but that's what this one is. But it shouldn't be. I know, I know, I agree. But that's what this Matrix was. And I was like, what is it called? Resurrection? Resurrections or something. Resur- yeah. And then they were playing. There's, there's old, another joke there, but I'm not going to say it. Yeah. And then they were playing like, it's like they kept playing elements of the old movie in this movie. I know. It's, it's like and people were like, yeah, man, that thing on the screen seems real interesting. What are you guys doing? I mean, it's like, why are you doing that? Like, she knew full well that people wanted an extension of the Matrix universe. And by the way, there's all sorts of... Ex- the Matrix story... Go? Huh? You think there are a lot of ways that the story could have gone? Oh, think about the environment that these guys are in. Like, think about Star Trek or think about um, Star Wars. Like, it's not just, okay, here are the main characters. It's, there's a world that these right. people are in. And the Matrix stories go far beyond just Neo and them. I mean, they have, like, Neo wasn't the first. Or, like, um, there were stories that were coming out where, um, for example... When, what's his name? When, oh, I can't think of his name. Um, the one who turned on Matrix, the Judas of the bunch, okay, Cypher. When Cypher is talking on the phone and he's like, um, look, we're going to get this guy. We're going to bring him in, et cetera. And he's like very skeptical of what's happening. It's because Cypher has seen Morpheus bring other people on who weren't the one who ends up right, getting right. killed by the machines. He's seen that over and over and over again. And so it's like he brings on Neo and he's like, he's about to kill somebody else. It's like, this guy's a fanatic. This guy's, because in their heads, from our standpoint, Morpheus is this great figure. From right. their standpoint, Morpheus is a religious maniac. He's a religious maniac. Morpheus believes, think about them. it. He believes all of these things. He has no evidence of anything. And ultimately. Right, and he's like, 
This guy's it. Yes. No, this guy's it. Exactly. No, that guy. And if you remember, he ended up being wrong. Right. He was completely wrong. Right. Like, it's like his head is like all of that stuff was basically being pushed and manipulated. He's, I mean, at the very end of the second movie, he's like, he's like, I once had a dream and it is gone for me. Yeah, because he was wrong. He has all these <laughs> beliefs. And then at the end of it all, he's like, am I dreaming? He doesn't even know anymore. I don't even know what's real anymore. Like at the very revolutions, wasn't a great movie, but right. um, some of this stuff is amazing. And so it's like, you have these things where, for example, one of the situations where the machine was attacked by aliens. Okay, yeah. It was an alien attack on planet Earth. And uh, the Matrix machines basically had to do something about it in order to fend it off. All of these were alternate stories that were taking place within the Matrix universe that they could have basically expanded upon. Right. So, a lot of subplots in a that one. A lot of it. A lot of it. Like, think of the gravity of the machines are basically running a civilization with a war with the humanity. Period. Right. I mean, even the Matrix video game expands it. Like, where they go into— I never played that. So I'd— yeah, it's canon though. Like, like that's what I mean. They could have went so far in so many different directions with it, and the place they chose to go with it is this kind of yeah, weird I, meta conversation. All, right. All I know is with Resurrections, I was, I wouldn't say sorely disappointed because I liked, I liked the graphics. I like, I mean, when the, radically disappointed, the suspension, <laughs> radically the suspension disappointed. of disbelief. Fine. I, I, I'll try to jump back in to the Matrix yeah. world, to the existence. <laughs> Fine. But then there were so many reaches yes. for the, the love story and then the the whole, the amnesia that's basically just wiping out yeah. um, Trinity's memory. Stuff. memory yeah. like, like you can delete a memory card. You yes. know, like, like that. I, I get it. But it was just like, you guys are trying really hard to make a love thing happen. In this universe. And it's like, just, mm, mm. Just give me my Matrix back. And, and then the, the, what they did to Morpheus, Morpheus was ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. Where's Lawrence Fishburne? Yes. Utterly Give ridiculous. Lawrence Fishburne. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Let's go to Mark Sloboda. Let's get into a much darker conversation. Oh. Um, and we're going to get into the ground and what is taking place on the ground in Ukraine. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Javon Thomas. I'm with my co-host, Manila Chan. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So we have been paying attention to the events that have been taking place in Ukraine, and over the weekend, there's been right much action. It seems that Maripol is extremely on the brink of collapse with only... From the Russian side of it, around 400 people left in. They are out of munitions. They're out of apparently food and provisions. And Russia basically gave them a time frame for which to lay down their weapons and come out. It seems that Zelensky is screaming, we will fight for 10 years. We can fight for 10 years. Despite the fact that, again, these guys are out of munitions, weapons. They're completely surrounded. And they're only, based on Russian estimates, about 400 people left into the room or into the steelworks. Um, they have taken, meaning from standpoint of the Russians, the urban areas of Maripol, and the steelworks building is basically, or the plant is the only place that is left in Maripol. This is a massive 
massive failure from the standpoint of the Ukrainian military, regardless of what the West and the way they coat this. But it seems that Zelensky has decided that the annihilation of this force is preferable to allowing these people to surrender. To have a conversation with us, we're joined with one and only Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is international relations and security analyst. He is our voice of reason and truth. Mark, what is going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Jamal, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. It's always an honor and pleasure to have you. Did I say anything inappropriate or wrong? <laughs> inappropriate is not the right word for it. Did I say anything wrong in the introduction to that about the events that are taking place around Oripal? I mean, Russia basically put out that they came out with very specific numbers. Uh, and I just go through it. It says, as a result of the strike, some more than 320 U.S. Right here. As of April 16th, only in Muripal, the losses of Ukrainian group amounted to more than 4,000 people, Kanoshkinev said. He says, according to the ministry spokesman, the irretrievable losses of Ukrainian army and other Ukrainian paramilitary formations amount to 23,367. I think Zelensky said like 3,000. So this is a massive difference. And I got to be honest, I tend more towards that number as opposed to um, the other way. He, he- he claims it's revert. He claims that there are 20-some thousand uh, Russian dead, um, rather, rather than Kiev regime forces I can dead. go through the amount of losses that Western sources are given to the Ukrainians and gets across that, yeah, Zelensky's number is probably fictitious, to put it mildly. What is your take on this stuff? Please. Uh, well, I, I think he got his numbers directly from the ghosts of the martyrs of Snake Island and the ghost <laughs> of right. Kiev. Uh, who have communicated that from him from uh, across the great barrier of life and death. Um, so we should take that for all the seriousness it's worth. There's far too much disinformation. I mean, it is, let's face it, it's routine in military conflicts uh, to hide uh, numbers of, of military dead, um, to, to obfuscate them, to hide them. Um, you know, um, we, we've seen uh, policies before in the United States where, uh, photographers were forbidden from uh, taking pictures of coffins returning from um, uh, overseas uh, invasions uh, coming back uh, to the United States. And uh, it's it's because it is a politically sensitive topic, obviously. Uh, but I don't think we can take the Ukrainian numbers, uh, you know, at all. Uh, the Russian numbers we can probably take with a grain of salt. Uh, saying that they, 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 their losses might be higher, but certainly not as anywhere near as high as uh, the Kiev regime is claiming. Um, and you will notice that the Pentagon uh, has had uh, has says it has very little confidence, even in its own numbers, of of say the Russian dead, and it refuses to comment on the Ukrainian dead. So you know it's it's a it is really a fog of. Let me ask you this. One of the other weird things that have been taking place had to do with some of the cities that I guess Russia has captured, where it seems that some of those cities are raising or changing the signage to Russia. And apparently, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, and these are just reports that were coming out, that some of those areas, let's say Karasan, for example, was putting in, let's say, referendum potentially in order to determine whether or not they're going to be, I guess, independent republics or, I guess, being more towards Russian orbit. What is the reality of this? I mean, is this true? I mean, yeah, in in the areas of Donetsk and Lugansk, of the former Donetsk and Lugansk administrative regions that have been um, recovered by the Donbass 
the uh, sorry, the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic, their flags are what is flying there. Um, they often uh, fly their flags with the Russian flag a little lower, but as they are recognized as independent countries, the replacement, as I have seen, is primarily uh, in favor of their own local flags. Uh, Russian military forces are operating, uh, you know, at their request for aid uh, from the regime in Kiev that was, um, you know, uh, attacking them for the last eight years. Um, in Kherson, it's interesting. I hear a lot of chatter about holding a referendum uh, on Kherson, uh, basically independence, much as was done back in 2014, uh, uh, 2015 by uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, I have not heard that confirmed anywhere yet. There is a lot of talk from both sides about it. If that was the plan, um, then that would indicate a Russian move towards the balkanization of Ukraine. What does that mean, the balkanization of Ukraine? You mean splitting it up into multiple sectors? Yeah, breaking it up into multiple parts. Uh, that might be seen as the best way to manage it uh, moving forward without taking over the entirety of the country, devolving to decentralized local government uh, you know, uh, not not by act of a decentralized um, constitution, which was what the Minsk protocols were supposed to do. Uh, that that option has obviously flown out the window. So now they're going to do a, a very much decentralized uh, Ukraine, or or they they could do right if if this bears out again. I haven't heard anything confirming it, but I've heard lots of chatter about it, like you have. Uh, that would be splitting up Ukraine so it wouldn't present a threat either to Russia or to its own people, say, for instance, and in Donetsk and Lugansk and anyone in Kherson who didn't want to be part of, you know, well, Banderistan. <laughs> sure. Now, Mark, Manila Chan here, uh, in case you confuse our voices. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um I'm wondering what your perception of the media narrative of this potential balkanization looks like. I mean, for a long time there, we heard, um, at least here in Western media, that, you know, this is part of the the Vladimir Putin um, ideals of, of, you know, bringing Ukraine and, and even um, the Donetsk region back into the fold, recreating the USSR and his image. Do you think that is still a narrative that's playing out anywhere in any corners of the world, or do you think the West has largely abandoned that narrative? Oh no, I I, I think I mean you take your choice of narratives, right? Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is going to take over the entirety of the former Soviet Union because he's a communist fascist. Uh, Elvis worshiping, I don't know, you know, whatever. Um, he's going to launch nuclear weapons uh, uh, at, at Ukraine. And then the world was the latest one. He's going to launch chemical weapons. Um, uh, he's going to attack Poland and the Baltics. He's going to take Alaska back from the United States. You know, uh, it um, yeah, he, he's 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 causing hogweed invasion of the United Kingdom. Um, I mean, take your 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 crazy tinfoil hat wearing 
uh, insecurity and phobia of the week. And it's, it's easy to blame the Russian president for uh, because, you know, Russians are the bad guys that we have, you know, we we lost for, uh, you know, a couple of decades uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and, and tried to replace them with with ISIS and Al Qaeda and, and, and the other jihadists, and considering we were actually backing them half the time. I think it's it's kind of refreshing to have an, an enemy uh, other back uh, that. United States and, and its allies can blame for everything that's wrong in their own societies, including the price uh, for gasoline at the pump in the United States. Got another question for you. And this, this one has to do about mercenaries. Um, Russia basically put out very specific numbers on the number of mercenaries that are basically fighting and where those people are coming from. And of course, Poland, the United States, et cetera. Also, there's this thing about this is not just a political distinction, right? I mean, ultimately, they're saying that mercenaries don't necessarily get the same wartime conventions, that if they're captured, they're basically going to be prosecuted because you came into the country to kill Russians, or I think their word was Slavs. Um, how is this being cast there, all things been equal? I mean, ultimately, they're saying that a lot of people from foreign countries are in the country itself. They even caught a British guy that they've basically been parading around media for the last several days, um, saying that, look, this guy came into the country, and here are one of these people who have basically been captured. I think they're even saying there are 400 left in Maripol at this point. What is the significance of the mercenary aspect of this war? Okay, so uh, they're claiming uh, the, the numbers they have are that some 6,824 foreign mercenaries from 63 countries have, have, have come to fight in, uh, in Ukraine uh, on the Kiev regime side. And they claim that of those, uh, one, basically one-sixth of them, just over 1,000, uh, have been eliminated. Uh, meaning that there's a thousand less of them. Uh, and they do report that there's still some 400 foreign fighters uh, holed up together with the Azov uh, state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad uh, in the Azov Stahl um, uh, steel factory in, in Mariupol. Um, from the, the Russian, the perception of the Russian government, uh, these are unlawful combatants. Uh, which means they do not have protections under the Geneva Convention. And they have actually said that a trial and a long prison term is the best that they can hope for. Uh, so I, I think that is clearly meant to be a strong deterrent message, although the strongest deterrent message is probably coming uh, from these, uh, whether you want to call them mercenaries or adventurers, uh, who have fled uh, Ukraine and have come back home with horror stories about how they have been abused uh, and uh, used and used as cannon fodder uh, by the regime in Kiev, uh, how it has uh, avoided giving them weapons, ammunition, proper equipment, thrown them uh, straight into uh, battles, uh, how they're, you know, they're not up against um, uh goat herding locals in some third world countries that the U.S. is invading anymore, that they're fighting, uh, you know, they, they come with their, you know, uh, sometimes they're actually given a rifle uh, by the Kiev regime and a little bit of ammo. I've, I've seen as little as uh, 10 rounds of ammunition uh, to fight a military that's armed with strategic bombers and thermobaric weapons. A couple MREs maybe here have something to chew on, boys. 
So uh, I, I don't expect that their life expectancy is very high in this conflict. Um, this is a real conflict using uh, modern or, or, or near modern militaries uh, in the case of the Soviet um, arsenal deployed by the Kiev regime in Ukraine. Um, and it is a serious, mechanized, fire-heavy conflict. Um, and uh, the, these foreign adventurers, uh, you know, you know, if they want to die for the, the cause of the Zelensky regime and it's, you know, a far right neo-Nazi death squads, Azov in the right sector. Well, you know, hats off to you. Uh, but that's the best that they can hope for. Yikes. Mark, before you jumped on air with us, Jamarl and I were talking about how at the at the onset of this military action there, that within 36 hours, you had Vladimir Putin um, saying, you know, this is my very short list of demands and we will call it a day. I will pull back the troops. This is back when they were, when the Russian military only hit military targets, right? They're, you know, bombing airfields and whatnot. They asked for the for Ukraine to withdraw their NATO desires and intentions, change that on their constitution. They asked for Ukraine to return all of these heavy arms, all the heavy metal that they received from Western countries all around the world. And let's talk. Let's go to the table and let's let's broker peace. We're neighbors, right? I mean, at one point you heard Vladimir Putin uh, talking about how they're, they're brethren, right? They're neighbors. And then within a few days, the Zelensky regime came to the table and they were having these peace negotiations. And before long, we started hearing here, at least around Washington, and it spread like a cancer across America, biolabs, biolabs, all this talk about, you know, what Victoria Nuland had to say before Congress, biolabs, biolabs. What happened to those peace talks? They had, they had agreed on the main points. They were hashing out the, the details of peace talks. But now, fast forward six weeks, now you have Zelensky saying, we're going to fight for 10 years. What happened to those peace talks? Yeah, I, I don't think peace talks were ever serious. I mean, they were done for reasons of perception management. Um, I don't think, like all military conflicts eventually, at some point, end in a diplomatic settlement. But in order to keep the grounds for that diplomatic, to make the grounds for that diplomatic settlement, a victory needs to be won by one side or the other or total exhaustion possibly on, on both sides on the battleground, right? Things will, facts will be made de facto on the ground, right? That's, that's the way uh, it happens. And neither side is ready uh, to uh, capitulate to the other's demands yet. I, from from the Kiev regime side, uh, pulling uh, all of its troops uh, out of uh, what it considers to be uh, Ukraine, uh, and for Russia, you know, it's, it's it hasn't budged from its initial demands, uh, which were uh, neutrality, not joining NATO, um, the recognition uh, that Crimea is part of Russia, that the DNR and LNR are uh, independent. And also the demilitarization and the denazification, or or better term, the debanderization of the country. 
Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, they were sounding each other out. They were doing it for political purposes. And, you know, some good did come of it in the way of humanitarian corridors, a few small prisoners of war exchanges that have taken uh, place so far. And, uh, you know, as demonstrated in Syria, uh, conducting constant diplomatic activity while engaged in conflict is part of the Russian way of war. Right. Diplomacy is war by other means. Other other people have said that. But uh, Zelensky thinks that his, he can win this at, at some level. He thinks that Western sanctions will destroy Russia, um, that they will lose the will to fight, that perhaps they can make the Russian people suffer enough that they rise up in the streets and overthrow their government or or demand that the troops come home, something like that. And, you know, he, he has demonstrated that he's perfectly willing to to sacrifice as many Ukrainian citizens as he can to protect his regime, right? He's opened the prisons and released violent criminals onto the streets to fight Russia. He's handed weapons and, and uh, instructions for making Molotov cocktails out to the regular citizenry, asking them to attack Russian troops, giving up their rights, civilian rights. Um, he has conscripted every single male in the country, basically at gunpoint in many situations, between the ages of 16 and 60. <laughs> so he is obviously perfectly willing uh, you know, to fight this uh, as he sees it to the bitter end, no matter the cost in life to protect his regime. And the West is perfectly willing uh, to fight Russia, quite happy to. To bleed Russia to the uh, last uh, Ukrainian conscript that Zelensky can throw in there. And that's unfortunate. And, you know, it's while the Western media basically owns up to the same thing at this point. That it's like the uncomfortable truth is that many NATO nations are willing to fight to the last dead Ukrainian. I don't want these guys to pull out that war early. I want to get into this notion. You mentioned, I want to get into the Russian um, flagship that was basically taken down the cruiser. The Moskva, I believe it's pronounced. And I want to get into this from the standpoint of the um, I guess you can call it a threat, a warning, however you want to put it out. But basically, Russia sent dispatch to various NATO nations and United States basically saying, stop arming these guys. You're going to create or there's a potential for, I think, unpredictable consequences if you guys continue to arm them. And at that point, everything is fair game, meaning any shipment, anything that's coming into the country is fair game to be hit. And my question would be, is it is the reason they sent this dispatch is because they know on some level. And again, it's conjecture for my part that. What hit that ship was a missile, and that missile might have been from one of the ones of the middle, um, the um, weapon systems that the U.S., or for that matter, the U.K., was basically putting into the country. And that it creates this kind of weird political situation if you own up to the fact that one of the missiles or some of the weapon systems, especially the, all of these new armaments and everything else that they're dumping in, is having a real world, let's say, change in the military context, at the very least in specific situations, these kind of pinprick strikes. But nevertheless... It's to the point where it's like, look, this is an issue. And the fact that you're arming these guys, this is having some level of an effect. Um, and we need to deal with that. Could you get into that for the moment? Is that why they sent a dispatch? And is that why um, many of these attacks were, it seems to be expanded across Ukraine after the boat was hit in this way? Tell me if I'm wrong on this, though. I don't, this, again, this is conjecture on my part. No, no, it, it is a possibility. I don't, I don't know if there's a direct correlation between the announcement of that, uh, of, of the, the Russian government has been saying along that all 
Western weapons pouring into Kiev are legitimate targets. Uh, but uh, the Kiev version is that the Moskva, um, which is, is an aging warship, it is, yeah, it's from 1976. It was actually laid down uh, in what was then Soviet Ukraine. Uh, because that's where the major Soviet shipyards were at the time. Uh, so it's been around a while. It's it's venerable, but it has received some stages of modernization, uh, a lot like a lot of older U.S. ships. Um, and it uh, it was the flagship of the Black Sea. So it is an important symbolic victory, whatever happened. The Kiev regime side size says they used two um, Neptune, uh, Ukrainian Neptune um, uh, anti-ship uh, surface-to-ship missiles uh, that hit it um, while it was being distracted supposedly by a Turkish-supplied um, uh, combat uh, drone, a Bayraktar. Um, th- there's a question about this, because at the start of the conflict, the Kiev regime supposedly only had one battery of Neptune missiles. That was it. And I would be surprised if they weren't one of the first targets hit. And uh, the United Kingdom raised the specter months before this that on top of building naval bases uh, in Ukraine, uh, they were going to supply the Kiev regime with harpoon anti-ship missiles. Uh, The Russian government has been completely silent on the cause. They say that there was a fire. Uh, that it detonated an, uh, an ammo supply, but they don't say what the cause of the fire was. Um, it is possible it was an accident, but it's also possible that they are trying to determine exactly what type of missile it was to hit it, and then what to do about that. What would be the domestic political ramifications, the international political ramifications, say if they came out and said that this was a Brit- British anti-ship missile that sunk uh, the flagship of the Black Sea, uh, because uh, you know Russia has domestic politics like like any country, and there would be uh, a lot of cry for you know, well, revenge, a, a strike back, and then then at who uh, would be the question. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll see in the days ahead, and in that way, I think the situation is very much like the sinking of the Kursk. Uh, back in the early 2000s when when Putin uh, first took office as president in Russia. And there is a lot of speculation here that the Kursk was actually sunk sunk in an incident with a U.S. submarine and that that was covered up. Uh, But uh, that, you know, is, again, speculation, but speculation put forward by some very serious people. Mark, Mark, in the last couple of minutes that we have with you, let me throw a question of politics out there. We know that we're facing the 2022 midterm elections here uh, stateside, but in Ukraine, they elect their president every five years. Volodymyr Zelensky went into office in 2019, I believe. So that would then, guess what? Put the next Ukrainian presidential elections in 2024, right in line with America's next presidential election. Uh, also in lines with Russia's next presidential election, by the way. Wow. So with all three happening, how do you see all of that shaking out? Do you think this war is going to be beneficial to Zelensky, beneficial to the Democrats here stateside? I mean, what's what's this uh, going to do to the outcome of those very crucial elections, obviously? 
Yeah. Okay. So first of all, we're just two months into this conflict. So, um, uh, we don't know if any of these, uh, players will, will be around. I mean, Biden almost certainly, uh, likely, but, uh, we don't even know if Zelensky Maybe. will be around. All right. He may be taking up an apartment with, with, uh, Svetlana Tihanovskaya and Juan Guaido pretending their country, uh, you know, uh, presidents of countries together somewhere, you know, in, in, uh, Brooklyn or something at, at, at that point in time. Uh, but b- before this conflict began, Zelensky's approval numbers were in the low twenties, right? Uh, uh, th- that sunking from the 75% uh, that he was, uh, approval went when he was, uh, first elected. So obviously he had been a huge disappointment to a large swath of the Ukrainian people. Um, and you know, that is in a very, you know, an election that is called democratic by the West, but, you know, uh, elections, uh, you know, despite, uh, you know, all, all of the millions of Ukrainians disenfranchised, uh, the political parties banned, lustrated, you know, the Azov serving as election observers, <laughs> you know, uh, on top of that, you have the uh, elections in a country are usually not considered valid when they're held under not just literal barrel of gun, but shelling of grad and, and Azov jackboot as well. So, uh, but, um, you know, th- there obviously has been a rally around the flag effect uh, in Ukraine, I, I think, um, uh, you know, j- judging by the resistance uh, of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and the paramilitary battalions, how long that will play out during, a, a, you know, another few months, years of war leading up to the next election, it's very hard to say. Um, similarly, uh, Putin's approval rating in Russia jumped from some 59% into up to uh, 84%, uh, a huge uh, jump. There has been a similar rally around the flag here, and that's according to independent, even Western funded pollster, you know, very anti-government, uh, Levada. Um, and, and likewise, there are uh, numbers in the 80% showing support uh, for uh, the military intervention in Ukraine. Real quick, I need to jump in because we're coming to the um, close of it. But Gonzo, Gonzalo Lira, do you know anything about him by chance? Uh, yeah, um, it seems uh, from the recounts I've seen, it is possible that he has been abducted by the Ukrainian intelligence services, the SBU, his independent reporting. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaro Thomas. And in the unsexy center corner, in the way that you said. Yeah, right. I know, right? It's not a corner, it's a circle of room. Um, But in the other corner, we have Manila Chan, who's co hosting. Um, for the time period. And I'm, I'm going to go with the mistress in the middle. The it mistress. is not sexy to be in the middle, I know, because you got to be far left, far right, and and throw firebombs. <laughs> but I'm here for sanity, man. Sometimes it's a little left, sometimes it's a little right. The mistress of sanity, Manila Chan. The mistress of the middle. The mistress of the middle. In the middle. That's the truth, and that's where the sanity lies. Oh, is that where the truth lies? I, I am not so. one of those people that believe so. His story, her story, somewhere in the middle. 
is the truth. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Is that true? See, I'm one of those people that believe that there are times where the truth is not in the middle. In fact, I tend to hate those people. Hate is the wrong exactly. word for it. But I, dis- but I dislike those people because oftentimes they're just, meaning they want to, and I'm not saying you, I'm just talking about it in general. Oftentimes it's like, okay, this event took place. And then the reality of it is the event might have be that way. Meaning the guy who's basically the farthest and the hardest on it could be right in certain well, situations. Sure. I think that's the exception to the rule, not Maybe. the rule. Depends on what it is. I think the rule is the, the middle tends to be closer to to reality and actual events yeah. rather than what he said or what she said. Ah, it's his own situation. in the middle. And the rub is, the fact that people think that, it's like, well, it's always somewhere in the middle. It means that the person who is right often gets the disadvantage. Because the person who was well, like, sure. who's like, well, if I just want to be, right. I just want to be tiebreaker in the situation. Well, I don't want a tiebreaker. I just want to know what's true. What's well, true is matters. Somebody's more right, right? Because it, it, yeah. your percept perception matters. Yes, perception matters, and and your your perception of reality could be different than mine. I yes. mean, I we could see something that's purple, and you might say it's violet, and I might say it's lavender. Yes, right? Are we totally wrong? Because it's it's purple. Yes. Like Grimace. Totally agree. McDonald's, right? Totally agree. Grimace, he's purple. But if I say that's a dog and you say that's a pterodactyl and somebody who comes and says, well, that's I mean, somebody's really. in the middle. The middle is like something in the middle has to be true. He's a blob with legs. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. That's, I mean, what the hell is Grimace, really? Like, for example. What is Grimace? Let's say we're engaged in the Ukraine thing. Let's say we're engaged in the Ukraine thing. And the U.S. media, you read them and they're like, Ukraine is doing great. Um, Russia is not accomplishing its objectives. You have the ghost of Kiev that took down 15,000 people on one tank of gas. Now, does the person in the middle says, well, look, something in the middle has to be true. Maybe the ghost of Kiev took down seven five hundred fighters. And maybe he had two tanks of gas. No, no, that's not the middle. Because then if, if... My Amer- assertion is that it exists. No, if, if, hypothetically, in a world where Americans were able to hear what the Russians have to say, because God forbid you hear what Russia has to say about this war that they're engaged in, you only want to hear the so-called quote-unquote victim's side, that's where you have, that's the rub. That's where you got to balance out. You got to hear his side, not only her side. Like when there's, there's a lot of, you know, like, oh, victim, poor victim. But are they really a victim entirely? Because some of these stories, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to piss off a lot of feminists, but I'm not a uh-oh. Believe her. Hashtag believe her. Uh-oh. Because there are not a lot. There are a lot of shady ladies out there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's true. This don't sound like the center. I know. That, that, <laughs> that is the center. Like the center. That is the center. There are a lot. You can't. You got to look story by story. There's, there's some, lich, some shady broads out there. There's shady, can't use the other shady word. ladies out there. And, and likewise, there are some nefarious bad dudes. Yes. But somewhere in the middle is that truth. And so... In a world where, theoretically, American adults could hear all sides of the story of what's happening in Ukraine, let them be the, the I'll use a G.W. Bush term, the decider. Y'all be the decider on what that truth is. Thousand percent agree with you that it should be a contextual explanation of what happened, why it happened, why we're here. And that is the thing that we definitely don't get. We definitely don't get that. I mean, look, I guess my thing is, 
If you are giving two people and say, hey, the ghost of Kiev took down all of these fighters and the other side said it doesn't exist. What's the middle ground? Yeah, well, it's that. You you at least need to hear voices. <laughs> you get, I mean, right now we are in, we are existing in this echo chamber of Slava Ukraine, right? War propaganda. That's Slava exactly Ukraine. Is. This is, right, I'm waiting to see the posters, you know, down 14th yes. Street. <laughs> right, those old posters, yeah. I'm like, you know, bright yellow yeah. and, and just, you know, the face of, you know, kind of like the, the Obama hope. Yeah. But it's like Slava Ukraine, like Nancy Pelosi did during, yes. that was yes. barf worthy. Like, you don't even see her pledge to the flag, right? Pledge allegiance to the flag. But she was hurling Slava Ukraine and come on, everybody, get up. Slava Ukraine. And that was... Ooh, cringe. We need you more to be more cannon fighter. More cannon fighter. Bleed the Russians white. That much more. It's despicable when you think about it. When you hear these guys come out and say, this war didn't have to take place. No, duh. No, duh. It didn't have to take place. Or Zelensky is like, well, I mean, behind the scenes, they were saying I was never going to be a part of NATO. And you think to yourself, all of these people are dying. This is a massive catastrophe. And you're now basically saying this didn't need to take place. Yeah, it's a massive slap in the face. But let's do this. Let's go to headlines. In the news, in an article penned in the New York Times, Microsoft founder ben, Bill Gates, but said Bill Gates, Bill Gates said he believes the fight against the coronavirus pandemic could have been more efficient and lives saved if scientists focus more on developing therapeutics alongside vaccines. The billionaire said in an event of a similar pandemic, even if scientists managed to develop a vaccine in 100 days, it would take time to administer it to the population. Also, not everyone who has access to the vaccine would choose to take it, making the availability of the therapeutics crucial, he wrote. Again, no, duh. I mean, but he's saying this after the fact as if these guys weren't trying to come up with therapeutics. I mean, where does Bill, where does Bill Gates think he was? I mean, they were coming up with, what, microantibiotics? They were coming up with all of this other stuff in addition to the COVID vaccine. And I agree with him that, especially when Biden took office, there should have been this kind of dual approach to it. But how do I know that there wasn't a dual approach to it, if that makes sense? I mean, they were coming up with therapeutics. Hospitals were coming up with ways of trying to... Tomorrow, these are all therapeutics. These are not vaccines. Exactly. All of these out for COVID are therapeutics. therapeutics. Yeah. They're not one and done a shot, like a measles shot. Yes. Again, agreed. Agreed. And I guess that's kind of my point. He's like, well, they should have did this as opposed to just the vaccine. It's like, dude, they were doing other stuff. Right. You might have thought it was inappropriate or not enough. Fair enough. Agreed. You might have thought that it didn't go far. Again, agreed. Um, but yeah, I don't know where Bill Gates thinks he was. No, I mean, he's, I'll tell you, his head is busy becoming farmer Gates, <laughs> you know, post the divorce. I, yeah. I mean, I guess everybody has, you know, after a divorce, they go through a phase. Bill Gates is in the buy up American farmland phase, buy up. All is the that potato where he is? Par- Did you not know? I didn't know that. Bill Gates has now become single-handedly <laughs> America's biggest ag farmer. Are you serious? And he supplies all. If you are out there eating McDonald's French fries, Bill Gates, you just ate a Gates potato. Really? Yes. He has become the supplier of potatoes to McDonald's. Boom. And apparently also the largest landowner yes. in America. Because of that all, the ag- yes. all that farmland. That, because during COVID, we weren't paying attention. Buying it up. He was snapping up farmland. We weren't looking. 
And we were busy, you know, everybody's uh, down the rabbit hole with, with Q talking about yeah. the vaccines and blah, blah, Bill Gates' vaccines. So he's like, ha ha. I'm just going to battle ahead. You, you all are talking about me with vaccines. I'm going to be over here buying up all the land. People should control, not have access to this much money. Control the food supply in this country. Bill Gates, that's what he's doing. Not have access to that much money. I swear they shouldn't. Let's keep going. That's that's distressing. Mm-hmm. That's very distressing, to put it mildly. Um, in national news, U.S. Republican lawmaker Dara Issa, who currently represents California's 50th congressional district, has shed light on some ongoing efforts to investigate the matter of the infamous laptop from hell belonging to Hunter Biden, son of U.S. President Joe Biden. During his recent appearances on Fox News' Sunday morning features, or futures, I'm sorry, Issa suggested that Hunter Biden's investigation should be followed, quote, all the way to the big guy, unquote, and that it is something that they're going to need a special prosecutor for. Quote, in the meantime, we're investigating it. We have the laptop, he added, and the laptop is a treasure trove of obviousness. Unquote. I love that, that word, an obviousness. Treasure trove of On Friday, Florida's Department of Education announced the rejection of 54 math textbooks over presence of, quote, prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies, including critical race theory, unquote. Wait, wait, did you say math? I did say 54 math textbooks. Math, M-A-T-H. M-A-T-H. Mathematics. Mathematics. Last year, Florida's Department of Education banned critical race theory. The department described their review process as transparent, but did not name the textbooks or highlight passages of the failed review. Keep in mind, this is a Republican state that is basically calling nonsense. Did you know? My they mouth did, is a, a, a game. I, I'm math. Yes, math. It could be, it, for, honestly, CRT, for all math. I know, they could say something like, hey, this person was making X amount and this person made less over the period oh, like of time. like in a, in a written Oh, I don't know. Question? I mean, they're not giving any explanation in regards to what they rejected uh, or why. So, for all I know, it could have been a mathematical thing that gave just a contextual thing of what people are dealing with in real-world terms, and they're like, yeah, too much. That's too close to getting to the reality of what people are dealing with in this country. I, don't, I have no idea. It's a math book. Who knows what a Republican group came up with in regards to their reason for saying they don't want to vote. Yeah, but on the left, on the left, you go to Seattle, mm-hmm. and math is racist. We're going to let our 12th graders graduate high school with like hearts and stars and smiley faces That's on their worse. report cards. That's even right. worse. That's so even math worse. is racist over there out west and down in Florida, math, math is, is also CRT racist, racist in a weird way. In a weird way. So, yeah. Oh, just so leave aggravating. Math alone. This is why we are no longer the number one, the world leader in education anymore. I was reading Jeez, something where they were going into this idea that, what was it? They were basically saying, so I was in advanced classes when I was in school. You don't say. Yeah, I was in events, <laughs> what it's math, Spanish, and what is it, math, Spanish, English, and something else. Um, I See, love those. We, we, are, we are the anti-stereotype. Is that what we are? The yes, anti-stereotype. I'm, I'm a bad at math Asian. Oh, are you? <laughs> All right. That is why I ended up in journalism. Yeah. Go figure, right? Like, if it, I mean, the stereotype would, would dictate otherwise yeah, I was for the two of us sitting here. Mu Alpha Theta by two points in my math class. Still bothered by that. Still bothered by that. Because it was like two points. It was like, um, let's say like an 88 as opposed to a 90. I needed a 90 in order to make it an A in order to balance out a C that I made another part. Oh. I still remember that. That's like 30 years ago. But <laughs> regardless, I guess my point is... Pre-Y2K. Yeah, pre-Y2K. <laughs> I guess my thing is like, those things are beneficial though. There are situations where there's going to be some kids that love that stuff and eat that stuff up. 
and you want those kids to eat it up as much as they can take it. Fill them up. And my, my point of that is everybody in your society is not going to excel, period. And you're going to get some people that do so. And the last thing you want to do as a society to undermine the people who really, really want to excel to make it feel better for people who can't or don't. And that's what some of that stuff is. It's like, okay, well, we're going to get rid of um, these type of classes. Why? That why? Thing, right. Why? Because it's making people who aren't that good feel bad. I don't care. Right. I, I don't care. There are going to be people that are in this world not meant to be doctors. Correct. Correct. There are some people that there are some people that should not be operating on your brain. Yes. When you have a stroke. Thousand percent. Yes. And if you think about <laughs> the big ticket items, like the big technological items or the big breakthroughs. We're talking about a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the human species that do that stuff. Yes, other people benefit, other people build on it and everything else, but it's usually just a tiny, tiny fraction. Meaning it doesn't need to be everybody. A small number of people could create massive differences in your society, and you should fill those people to the brim with all the education, all the advancement that you that they can swallow. See, that, there we go. That is, most of us are kind of somewhere in the middle. Yes. I'm in the middle. I'm, everyone's kind of in the middle. There's the fringes that are extremely stupid. Let's face it. I'm sorry. God bless you all. But some people are just dumb. Yes. Right? Like just, I mean, they could be the nicest people on earth, but you know, and, and sometimes they even know. I mean, that's what Forrest Gump was written about. Yes. yes. Right? Like, like, he was slow. He was, he was not that bright. Right. And then there are exceedingly bright people. Yes. There are, whether, love them or hate them, Elon Musk. Love them or hate them, Bill Gates. Love them or hate them, Jeff Bezos. They're, these are very intelligent people. But when you think about it, it's a very tiny fraction. Tiny. That's kind of point I'm making. Like the you exception. don't need Those everybody. are the exceptions. Exactly. Everyone else is kind of in the middle, little little towards the dumb sometimes, a little towards the smarter sometimes. But there's the middle ground. Yes. Everyone else is the fringe. Yes. I. Yes. Fill yeah. these people with all their education yes. and advancement. They Challenge get. people so you can improve, so you can get better. When you start giving out stars and smiley faces as a grade, it's like, we want you to feel better about yourself, yes. not advance. No, right. advance is the but, important but part. But the, the kids that are the exceptional kids, right? I was exceptional in other fields. It wasn't math, yeah. but but for the kids that were exceptional, where do they go? Why why are you? You know, if there are, let's just say hypothetically, they're not going to go anywhere. Hypothetically, they're if, there's, if there's just a handful of really bright kids in school and a handful of really dumb kids in school and everybody else kind of somewhere in the middle, why are you making the exception to go this way for the handful of dumb yes, kids agreed. versus the handful of smart kids? Agreed. Because then everybody just suffers, I feel like. Agreed. They care more about their feelings. Yeah. They care more about their feelings. There's a way to make that work. I'm gunning. The, br- the brains of your society is not the way to do it. Yeah. In international news, Ukraine is ready to fight for its land for 10 years. The country's great man, President Zelensky, said in an interview on CNN. And yeah, I'm being entirely sarcastic when I say great man. I've already made my feelings about Zelensky very clear. Quote, we want to liberate our country to take back what belongs to us. We may be fighting the Russian Federation for 10 years to take back what is ours. We may choose this path, unquote, Zelensky said. He urged the West to speed up arms deliveries. Um, to the Ukraine, quote, we need the equipment today or tomorrow, not within three, two or three months, Zelensky added. I hate to tell him this. This war may not be going on for two or three months. I, I don't think they have. I mean, what is their population? Some, I, like 40-ish million? I think so. Yeah. I give or take. 30-ish, 30, yeah. 30 to 40-ish million. But they don't have a population or the materials or anything to support right. a war for 10 years. Or 44, I'm getting from the peanut gallery. Yeah, 44 million. 44 million. million. So I knew it was in the 40-ish range. And... and 
you got to figure half of that is is women. So now you're looking at about 22 million. And then of fighting age, so you got to figure at least 30, 20, 20-ish percent got to yeah. be children. So, I mean, you're dwindling down the population. They don't have the population. Small yeah, they don't to, have population. To fight a war for 10 years. And keep in mind, Delinsky is just lying. That's math. Tomorrow he I just, did math. Delinsky's just lying. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you ain't got to. The, the you math isn't there. That. You ain't got to go into the weeds on that. Zelensky is just lying. The math isn't there. No. I'm not even good at math, but did I kind of dwindle that down all right? Yeah, and I would say numbers? you don't have to use math on that. You can just look at the character of the person. And Zelensky is just lying. Like, really lying. Well, yeah, that too. That too, yeah. That, that too. too. But, but the math, but your math was on point too. The yeah. math is not there. You no. don't have the population to support a war for the next decade. That's no. insane. Where are you getting the materials? Where are you getting the food? Where are you getting? Insane. And that doesn't even get into what does it mean for the other parts of the world? Meaning from the gas um, mm-hmm. um, things, what does it mean for food? Do Ukraine and Russia amount for like 40% of the world's food production? Like, do no. Just no. No, no, no. Bill Just Gates no. is doing our food production, so don't worry. <laughs> That's more of a reason to worry. And let's go to the last one. Um, the Yemeni president stepped down under pressure from Saudi Arabia. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday, citing Saudi and Yemeni officials who added that the ex-Yemeni president is now being held under de facto home arrest in Riyadh and has limited communications with the outside world. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman allegedly handed a hadi, handed hadi, a quote, written order, unquote, during talks in Riyadh, which outlined provisions for the delegation of powers to the newly created council. Prince Mohammed told Hadi that other Yemeni leaders had agreed that it was time for him to relinquish power, according to officials. That is astonishing. Basically, they forced the guy. Wow, that's astonishing. That's astonishing. In Earth and Science News, a wildflower thought to have been extinct for several decades have recently been discovered in Ecuador. According to Guardian, the flower, I am not going to even try that, was found in the foothills of the Andes in the remnant patches of the forest in Ecuador's Centilia region. The development comes after deforestation in western Ecuador during the 20th century resulted in a number of the plants supposedly going extinct with the last sighting of the plant dating back 40 years ago. Wow. No, there was something similar to that, you know, in the Las Vegas desert. Hmm. But they, they found something they thought one, was extinct. Yes, one little lone little desert flower has literally stopped a bunch of high-rises from being built on, I don't know, X amount of acres of land that yeah. this one little desert flower thought to be extinct in North America has halted, halted construction. Environmentalists were like, no, we got to preserve this one little flower. And mind you, they haven't found other flowers of that strain that I can't pronounce either. Yeah. Anywhere in the... Rep- surrounding acreage. I actually but, agree with them on that. But just that one, you agree with, with the environmentalists? Or, yeah. well, I think it's cool. I'm not. the issue is value. The issue is what is value. And this notion of how is value ascribed to things. Now, if you're a business person, you don't care about the flower. Doesn't matter in the least. We didn't know it was there. It's there now. Let's get rid of it. Right. If you are looking at it from the standpoint of, well, wait a minute, is a thing valuable if it's the only thing that exists? Then all by right. definition, the, the answer is yes. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, is that, can they move it? Is that a potential? Is there a middle ground with it? Um, I but don't know. But that's its, its indigenous... To the location. Lo- zone. Yeah. You have buildings everywhere. Right. Buildings so everywhere. just move, move your building over. Move your building. But, but because of zoning laws, you have to... You know, it has to be in a specific area. Yeah. Like, you have you can't be X amount of yards near it. Yeah. Or it's, you know, whatever they call it, where the foliage you grows. You have to find a middle ground on that one. So, but, n- no, but a lot of builders are... 
really pissed off of in course. Vegas right now. Yeah, they don't care about the flower at all. Um, today's business, today is tax day. Ugh. Make sure you file your taxes. Yep, that, that gives uh, I found mine, I think, early this year. Uh, this was the first time. I made my husband do it because, I again, not into the maths. Yeah. Not into that. This is not even math. This is bureaucracy. That's no, but there's, pain. I see numbers and I just yeah. start, I start, I see the matrix. Just, yeah. The numbers just number start here. going down Put the screen. And I, I get lost and I'm like, husband, do this. I cannot be involved. Where do I sign? That's always the benefit of having a hubby or wife. Right? <laughs> have the spouse do In it. In holiday news, we have Adult Autism Day Awareness or Awareness Day. Go Fly a Kite Day. International Amateur Radio Day. International Day for Monuments and Sites. National Animal Cracker Day. National Transfer of Money to Your Daughter's Account Day. Man, that is so uber specific. I love that. Right, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I, I'm a daughter. It's like I'm a daughter. Here, I'm a daughter. Cash. Um, day in history, 1506, construction of the current St. Peter's Basilica begins. 1906, a massive earthquake destroys San Francisco. In 1949, Ireland becomes an independent republic. In 1951, the European coal and steel community, a precursor of the European Union, is established. And in 1956, Prince Rainier, third of Monaco, marries actress Grace Kelly. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Let's do this. Let's go to our guests. And I'm going to take a break and we're going to come right back. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Jan is with us. And you guys will be back with the one and only Ted Rawl. We're going to have a conversation on domestic politics. You are not going to want to miss it. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan. And they're sitting here ribbing me. They're like, you don't know what a velociraptor is. Look. Okay, wait. Let me tell people. Jamal Thomas did not know what a velociraptor was. Not by the name, no. Not by the name. Because I can't. Look, if I don't wait, know so, it. So is it, is it just that? Because I get it. Sometimes you see it in writing and it throws you It's in you writing. Off. Yeah. And when so I saw it in like, writing, what, I was what, like, what am I okay, what am I reading? And then there's like Velociraptor. I was like, okay, Velociraptor. It, like, yeah, the- well, the raptor makes it sound like a dinosaur. But it just sounds like a dinosaur. Like, I don't know that. Like, you just didn't know that instinctively. Like, you see it in print and you're like, Velociraptor, dinosaur, no. Jurassic at the time, Park. I hit a word that I had no idea what that word was. They're giving me a heads no up of saying Velociraptor. I said Velociraptor. And at that point, it's not the no kidding. stepping through it to, okay, figure out what this is. It's more so, okay, there's a Velociraptor. I have no idea what that is. It's I that, that part. was just like a, you know, a pop culture normal thing to know, Velociraptor. Well, and then they're like, you didn't see Jurassic Park? I don't know if I did. So you, what? I, if I did, it was a long time ago. It was decades ago. I mean, it was the 90s. That's, that's yeah. when all the great movies were coming out. Yeah, if I, if, if I did, it yeah, was only like what? I mean, I'm not talking about all this. We're, you, you're getting canceled. I'm getting canceled. I'm, I'm, I'm learning from the producers. <laughs> you're getting canceled. You don't it's like, know. It's like, if you don't know what a Velociraptor is. Jurassic Meaning, Park? If you, tell, if you say, oh. you know, those little dinosaurs, I'm like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. Oh. The more you tell me what it is, I know what it is. But let's do this. It is tax day. Vanilla has her thing for taxes that she wants to give. Yeah. I, I'm curious to know if you all have already filed, because my husband is one of these, he's, he's a bean counter by nature. So he was on top of this, like, the first day. Like, yeah. W-2s came in. He's like, all right, time to go do taxes. And he, you know, was on top of it. And I'm like, I'm, wait, did you open my mail? Like, and he was, boom, off to the tax guy. So, 
Today is, a fi- I mean, normally it's April 15th, but because it fell on the weekend, it was, you know, holiday weekend. So tax day is today here across the United States. So I'm going to read to you some interesting facts uh, that people should know. Okay. So the U.S. is expected to bring in close to $3.74 trillion in tax revenue. Trillion with a T in 2022. That's according to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. About half of that comes from individual income taxes, one-third of that from payroll taxes, which also include Social Security and Medicare taxes. Now, that's an increase in revenue of nearly $500 billion over 2022. Federal spending is projected to be close to $5.08 trillion for this fiscal year, just the fiscal year. So we're good till October, I guess. So with tax revenue expected to be less than $3.74 trillion, that means there will be a deficit of $1.34 trillion with the T. 1.2 T will go to Social Security benefits, $973 billion towards Medicare, and the federal government, get this, is projected to spend $765 billion on defense in 2022. That's a little more than half the combined $1.45 trillion set aside for federal discretionary spending. I don't know what discretionary spending actually is. It's basically, think of it as... Um, Slush fund. That's no, 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 no. Things that you require. Meaning things that you can't necessarily get rid of. Think of like a think of um discretionary though. I mean, I don't yeah. I don't like that label because to me when I I have like a discretionary fund. So it's like, oh, if I want to buy myself, you know, a treat, I don't, I don't Oh, I'm sorry. It's the opposite. Non-essential items such as recreation and there entertainment, consumer purchases when they have enough income there left over are. after paying for the necessary But what expenses. is the what is the freaking federal government's discretion. That's not your discretion, you idiots. That's our money. Well, it depends on what it is. should not be your discretion. What is an example of discretionary... Okay, you look that up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rattle these yeah, go off. For it. Joint federal state health insurance programs for low-income people, better known as Medicaid, that spending is expected to be $516 billion. And then I have some random tax facts for you folks out there. So... Who gave us federal income tax? Do you know, tomorrow? Federal income tax. Who started that? I want to say FDR, but I'm not sure. Abraham Lincoln. Really? Go figure. Abraham Lincoln signed the Revenue Act in 1861, which imposed the first ever federal income tax. That was to drum up money. Oh, for the war. For the Civil War. For the Civil War. That's and what Congress was. enacted a modest, back then, modest 3% tax on income, anything over $800, which today would be about 23000 ish Wait, I thought they used to pay for the government using tariffs. Well, no. Oh, that, no, whole other thing. That was before yeah. Lincoln. Never mind, never mind. Yeah, then Boston Tea Party. And yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the law was, was almost instantly replaced with a new Revenue Act um, and repealed about a decade or so later. Um, didn't last. 1913, the 16th Amendment established the federal income tax system that we now all know, love, hate. I say that jokingly. Nobody loves it uh, today. And according to the IRS, the average taxpayer spends about 11 hours doing record keeping, tax planning, form submission, and all this other super fun tax stuff that we all look forward to every year mid-April. 
the average American gets about $3,000 back in their tax refund refund each year. Now, it's worth pointing out that a huge tax refund shouldn't necessarily be your goal because it basically means you gave the federal government an interest-free loan that year. So if you're like, you're like, oh, I got this huge tax return. It was your money. Don't act like they gave, they did you a favor. That was your money that they took and repurposed and leveraged somewhere else. Sometimes a war in Ukraine, sometimes, you know, helping out their federal defense people and dropping bombs on Yemen. That's, it's your money. So don't be happy that you got a big, big old tax refund. You gave the federal government way too much money. That's what that means. Um, there's a tax court. I don't think people realize that there is a tax court like there is a vaccine court. People don't realize that these things are out there because um, people get creative with their tax deductions. Um, the tax court looks at claims like, for example, uh, a bodybuilder who successfully claimed his supply of body oil as a professional necessity. It is. But you're, I mean, if you're a professional bodybuilder, yeah, it kind of right? goes with it. Yeah. I mean, how much, God, if you're writing off oil, like how much <laughs> oil are you? It may take a, you, it may take a lot. How much oil are you slathering on? And lastly, the president of the United States is not exempt from taxes. In fact, POTUS is for sure, any POTUS expected to pay their fair share, but they get a few nice perks to their job including non-taxable travel accounts worth 100000 bucks, and a non-taxable entertainment account with a limit of 19000 bucks. That number is... Where do they get these numbers from? I don't... These, like, arbitrary, like... They're so arbitrary. president, you get to have... But do you know his 000. income? Do you know the president's income? I thought it was, like, 400000 It is. It's 400000 That number has not changed, I believe, since 2000, 2001-ish. Uh, 2001, salary doubled. Back then, prior to that, it was $200,000. It's now $400,000. Um, George Washington. How much first, did he make? 10000 No, 25000 which back then. That's a ton of money. That's a ton of, that's, <laughs> that's a, I was going with 10000 right? thinking that that's a massive amount. Wow, he was getting paid. He was getting mad bank um, for, wow, like 25000 bucks back then. That's a lot of money. $25,000 is a lot of money. Especially in comparison to 400000 today. Right. But, I mean, that that would be 600000 today. Um, so Wow. But he didn't have federal income tax either because Abe Lincoln did that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Go figure. That is interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know Lincoln was the one that did that, but it makes sense in retrospect. Yeah. He was they funding a war. Money. They needed, well. He's funding a war effort. How do you get money for the war effort? Right. Got to raise taxes. You got to make the people pay for the war. I just think we don't do that today. We don't raise taxes when we go to war. When Bush went into war in Iraq, he didn't raise taxes. Well, I mean. In fact, he put it all on the deficit. If you remember when Obama got in office, there was like a $7 trillion gap. Put it on my bill. Gap. Put it on yeah, my tab. He just put it on the bill. Put it on the tab. Just, just put it on tab. Next like, guy's got it. If we're going to pay that much for these wars and everything else, we should be paying for the wars. Full stop. Like this idea of $30 trillion in debt. And you're, you just mentioned $1.5 trillion that basically is going to be a deficit going from one to the next year. Um, they're not even trying to make that up. That number just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And what people don't fully get is if we actually lose the reserve currency thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. my God. The petrodollars. Oh, my God. I think God. we're done for. That, I mean, it just will be dramatic consequences for it. And the relationship with Saudi Arabia, police. 
We're going to talk to Mark Frost about it, but thank you for that. Very cool. You guys are listening to Thought Lines. Thomas Chan. We have our guest, Ted Rawl. We're going to come back to him pretty much immediately. Um, So we'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Let's jump to our next guest. We have the one and only, one of my favorite guests, actually, Ted Rawl. He's an American columnist, syndicated um, columnist, and editorial cartoonist. I'm an author. Ted, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, and I was enjoying your convo about uh, taxes. You know, you know, George Washington was insanely wealthy, right? Like he- he would he would be by today's standards like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. He he had be, he'd be worth billions, uh, and it was you know basically institutionalized corruption at the time. He was our first president, Ted. How dare I, you, sir? I, I mean, I'm in, joking, Ted. I'm just totally right joking. over the bridge, you know, in in Alexandria, Virginia, his yeah. his home, you know, his estate. Yeah. I've been I've been there. It's massive, and, yeah. and 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 the. The solemn grounds of where slaves were buried, and I mean, there's a dark part of that. But, but you know, his home, beautiful, beautiful grounds. I mean, but like you said, he was like a land baron. Yeah, he'd be. He was yesteryear's Elon Musk. Yeah, like Ted said, obscenely wealthy. I mean, wow, I had no idea that he was getting that much money though. Um, as, as just starting the country. Um, but Ted, um, I want to go into events that are taking place in New York. And Eric Adams has basically been taking it in the face recently by media. He's been making the media rounds, especially yesterday. I want to play this clip, but I want to get your take on this because I want to get your impression of what is going on in the ground in New York. Because I got to be honest, it sounds like New York is basically the cast of the living dead at this point. What is like they're just zombies roaming around the streets. People are terrified of going to the subways, businesses being shut down, et cetera, et cetera. Let's hear Adams try to basically deal with this and explain the crime issue in New York. Let's play the clip. What happened in the subway system earlier this week is like the big, one of the biggest nightmares of New York City residents, particularly those who rely on the subway, and that is shootings on the subways. What do you say to New Yorkers who feel like the city, even though it has a new mayor and a new mayor with a, who has made public safety his number one priority, that the city is spiraling out of control? No, the city's far from that. I was in the city when it spiraled out of control. Uh, during the mid-80s, uh, early 90s, uh, we were part of the real uh, comeback uh, when it dealt with crime in this city. That is not what we're facing at this at this time. Uh, and again, I cannot point enough uh, to the NYPD is doing this job. Think about this for a moment. We took 1,800 guns off the streets uh, since I have been uh, the mayor. 4,000 uh, felony arrests major felony arrest, 4,000. We have a 
criminal justice system that's clogged. Uh, many of these people we arrested are back on the streets because the courts are not open. Uh, we have uh, laws that unfortunately are not zeroing in on those who are violent offenders. So the NYPD is doing its job. New Yorkers are doing their job. As we saw, we all came together to apprehend this dangerous person. And then we have to focus on a mental health issue that has been basically neglected for far too long. This city is far from spiraling out of control, and we're going to get crime under control and also deal with those pathways that feed the criminal behavior in our city. Ted, is Mayor Adams right here? I mean, how bad are things on the ground? And from the standpoint of what the mayor has access or what the mayor has done up to this point, with the exception of parties, I see him at parties all the time. I mean, it was one Sunday I saw him you know, dancing and everything else. I was like, dude, oh, I think it was like a Tuesday or something. He was like at a club dancing. It's like, dude, it's on Tuesday. What are you doing? What, I mean, what do you think of his response there? And how has the public um, in New York basically been dealing with Adams and this crime issue that's been taking place? I have never, you know, I'm gobsmacked. I, I saw Adams on, uh, doing a different uh, Sunday talkie yesterday uh, on Stephanopoulos. Same messaging. He sounds like Biden talking about inflation. Like, the man is so completely out of touch. I mean, he is nuts. And what is he talking about? Does he think we're stupid? New Yorkers didn't come together to apprehend the Brooklyn subway shooting suspect. He came together himself. He, he, called, he called in and said, I'm at, I'm at McDonald's in the East Village. Come pick me up. And they did. You're talking about the guy that did it, right? Like, <laughs> explain, like explain it for a moment. So he should get his own $50,000 reward. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He turned himself in. So it was a situation where the guy does it. He's on YouTube at one point. And he talks about, so instead of them getting, you know, it's like they were so focused on getting rid of Russian propaganda, quote unquote, on YouTube, that they missed the guy who's basically saying, I'm going to go murder a bunch of people. Then seven cameras don't work in the train station. Then they get on TV saying, we're looking for this guy. There's a man who the guy get on TV and say, on the radio and say, hey, by the way, I'm here at McDonald's. It sounds like you guys are looking for me. It, it, did I explain that correctly? <laughs> I missed that part of the story. Did I, did I explain that correct, Ted? Yeah, you did. And you, we can also add to what you said. That guy boarded the train at another station that obviously itself didn't have working cameras either. Right? So the point is that... Obviously, throughout the subway system, the, the cameras don't work. Yeah, New York is out of control. I, I came here in 1981, and uh, you know it's. And I will tell you, uh, the random violence, the uh, the vibe on the street, uh, the fear on the subways is exactly the same as it was in the early 80s. Uh, there is no difference at all. All we're missing is the cool graffiti. Otherwise, it looks exactly, feels exactly the same. Um, it's scary. Uh, people are afraid to stand near the, the edge of the subway platform. Asian New Yorkers are particularly terrified of, of taking the subway for fear of being victims of hate crimes. Uh, the subways have always been, a, you know, a, a mode of transportation that middle class and up avoid at night. But now they're avoiding it during the day as well. Uh, you know, the, the mayor's completely crazy. There is no police presence at all in the subway system. Uh, and that has not changed since what happened last week. Um, there is, uh, you know, you go down there, uh, you're pretty much on your own. If you needed police assistance, there'd be no phone. There's no phone in the train to call them from the, the you know, cell phones don't work. 
in the tunnels, unlike many other subway systems. They only work in the stations. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no way to call them from the platform. If you see a cop in the subway, it will be by the turnstile, inevitably on the cell phone. Um, you know, that's on his smartphone. Um, but, you know, in general, you're not even going to see them. Um, you know, I, I saw a couple of cops in my local subway station about a month ago. And, you know, it, it, New Yorkers were staring at these, at this rare, at these rare orchids. <laughs> like, like, what are you doing here? It's like, this isn't going to last. And it didn't. You know, it was like two hours and never to be seen again. No, the, the, I think uh, this mayor has already lost the city. Uh, people, if the if he Ted, he was he was a cop. Ted, he was a cop once. Yeah, and I I hope he was a better cop than he is a mayor. Um, he's I think he's a disaster. I imagine uh, polling would sh- would reflect that if it's being undertaken yet. Um, he is. Uh, I think he's lost the confidence of New Yorkers everywhere. Um, you know, I mean. And it's not just this one event. It's the fact that the subways are a disaster. This, you know, and we have this bizarre situation where rents are spiraling high while the city can, you know, basically disintegrates. It's really weird. Ted, I got, I got to correct you on a couple of points that you made, though. You said you moved to the city in 1981. I, I hereby say we have to call it the late 1900s. <laughs> Just to clarify to the Gen Zers out there who are listening, because um, somebody somebody told that to me that I was I grew up in the late 1900s and I my mind was blown. Okay, so that's the first thing. I mean, they're not wrong. They're not it just wrong. sounds weird, it, no. but it's true. They're not wrong. So you know, 1981 would be the the late 1900s, and secondly. What I think of now, because because I remember New York in the 80s, and it looks like what you, the opening scene of New York City of uh, Ghostbusters, right? And, and you see the grit. I mean, yeah, minus the cool graffiti, um, but that grit and, and grime is back and fear is, you know, running, running the town. And, you know, it's criminals running amok. And ghosts running amok, uh, but where where are the Ghostbusters? It's not. I guess that people thought they were voting that in, but apparently not. No, they they thought they yeah they really thought this was going to be different. Um, look, I think everybody New Yorkers are smart and they're re, and they're realistic and they know it takes time to turn the city around. The problem here is that words aren't going to do it, and. This is the mayor. He can order uniformed police officers into the subway right now, and he's not doing that. And that's the problem. I mean, that's, you know, it's, we don't expect crime to go away. We don't expect, uh, you know, everybody to stop doing remote working and, and get, fill the offices in, in, in the financial district in Midtown again. That's going to take time. Maybe it'll never happen. But we're not seeing the early actions that a mayor can do. I mean, he's not even recognizing the problem. You know, he's like, yes, my city's out of control. (laughs) (laughs) You're the mayor. It's your job. Reminds me of uh, the taking of Pelham 123, the original version, where it's, you know, the the mayor is in in bed with a cold when a subway train's been hijacked. (laughs) And he doesn't want to go out. And, you know, the deputy mayor is like, get out of bed. You're the mayor. They need to see. We know you don't care. You just have to pretend. 
Well, that's that's also, I mean, uh, look at uh, Pete Buttigieg, right? He was on paternity that's leave. That's right. He was on paternity you, leave. You had bridges collapsing. And I, I mean. Cargo ships were stuck off the shore, like hundreds. Right. Yeah. Like there's there's transport stuff happening, Pete. Where are you? And he's like, I'm bonding with our new baby. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, like Joe Biden, do you want to tell these people that are, you know, kind of at large part of your administration? I know, you know, mayors are not, but still, Democrat parties, DNC, call your folks in. Like, do they know that there is stuff happening in this country? And as I rattled off all of those tax numbers, you know, today being tax day, rattling off that bazillions of dollars, I think that's a real amount, bazillions of dollars going to the DOD, higher than ever, and this is under a Democrat president. You have those numbers spiraling, uh, you know, more more locally um, for Ted in New York City. These prices, I mean, I was recently looking at real estate prices because I was just curious because, because people are evacuating the city in droves. Asian communities flying out of there. You know where they're coming? D.C. Yeah, D.C. I mean, at one point... Do they know the rents here? I know. Well, we're, <laughs> we're not that far behind New York, right? But, but Asian communities are, are flocking a little south. Like, they haven't left the northeastern seaboard, but we're kind of mid-Atlantic, right? So they've come, come down quite a bit. And, and you see a lot of um, new Asian communities popping up because they are abandoning that big city. I mean, once upon a time, it was just New York City and San Francisco, um, a, a large amount in Los Angeles. But D.C. is becoming the new home to, or D.C. Metro, I should say, is becoming the new home to a larger Asian-American community because of, of the violence and the, the threats, or the perceived threats, at least, in these major metropolitan cities. What, what do you think about that, Ted? I mean, how... When when one population, one community feels more threatened than another, don't you have a really big problem on your hands as a mayor? Well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, regardless of the color of your skin, if you're not afraid uh, to be in New York City right now, you're stupid. <laughs> it's that bad. Wow. I mean, when I say, man, when I say walking dead, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're too far away from me on that one, Ted. No. I've already, you know, I mean, I, I don't, unlike the mayor, you know, I, I'm not out late at night clubbing. I'm not going to hate him for clubbing, guys. I'm sorry. I'm not with you on that. I'm I not going to hate on that. I'm going to massively hate him for clubbing I'm if the city is in ruins. But, but, but no, I mean, I, I get it. You got to cut loose sometimes. I get it. But do you think that's where he caught COVID? <laughs> well, that's, that's possible. I mean, he certainly didn't catch it from riding the subway. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's like, but you know, like, unlike the mayor, I don't, you know, I don't get out much. I'm not out late at night. And I see random acts of violence all the time. And I live in a very relatively safe neighborhood on the Upper West Side. Um, you know, I saw, I saw an Asian, a young Asian man being kicked in the face just randomly. Oh, my God. The mid-morning. Um, I, there were, uh, I went to check on my car. And there were bullets you know, zipping by. I was like, oh, like the old days when I went to Afghanistan. Um, you know, and, and there's, it's like every New Yorker can say something similar. It is scary here. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty tough guy. I've seen some things. I used to drive a taxi for eight years in the 80s. Wow. I've seen stuff. It's like that. It is just like that. And um, there's just a sense 
um, that it's, you know, it's everything's out of control. Even stupid stuff that we don't miss, like traffic cops, we miss them because now there's, you know, the traffic is snarled. Uh, there's no one enforcing the gridlock law. Um, there's street. We have alternate side street, uh, alternate side of a, a street parking here in New York. Uh, and most places are like Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, you have to move your car. Um, now you don't really have to because the street cleaner literally hasn't been seen in months. They just don't ever come. And there's no one ticketing. And, you know, it's great for people with cars. Uh, so, you know, they start breaking into them, I guess. Uh, but it's, there's, you know, it's, the streets are filthy. Um, you know, it's, it's a city that has no services anymore. Well, Ted, I, I beg to differ on that one because there, there are abandoned hotels. And I think, you know, this being a, a New York city local, there are abandoned hotels that are being converted into, you know, like halfway houses, I guess, if you will, to use an antiquated term, halfway houses for for a lot of for druggies, for junkies, for some homeless people that are right next door to residential, normal residential apartments where you have families. And that's what's driving a lot of people out of the city because that is where it appears the city is putting their services and their money. So are you as a taxpaying New Yorker happy to see that happening where, you know, some of these people are getting off the streets and they're doing it in this converted motel? I mean, the thing is, it's Manhattan, well, in Manhattan in particular, but New York City is high density. There's nowhere you could put a facility like this that's not near where families live, right? We're not, it's not like a lot of other cities where there's a discrete business district and a discrete residential zone. But the problem is there's no security being provided by the local police uh, There's or, you know, to serve these facilities. So, for example... Uh, on the Upper West Side in the in the high 70s, low 80s, there are three, or were until very recently, three of these hotels where uh, they basically were became they created a crime wave from the residents being out during the day and defecating on the street in broad daylight and attacking people. Um, and the thing is, the problem is, you know, New Yorkers are welcoming and we're we're used to the poverty in our midst and we we care about the homeless people and we want to help them. But, you know, with those facilities, you require security, and there's no security. That's the problem. Ted, I want to get into these migrants that are being bussed by Abbott, Governor Abbott. And they're basically being dropped off in D.C. They're now, here. Yeah, they're here. This is like, what, the fourth busload, I believe, um, that he basically has brought here? Wait, wait, not full busloads. We should clarify that. No, it's a fourth. Oh, busloads. Busload, yeah. It's not the loads. term busload. So you're thinking like 100 people on a bus. It's it's literally like 20-ish. Yeah. I was just thinking of bus size people. Well, no, that's I, fair. Not, no, no, no. You. That's totally not, fair. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fair. So let's just say a bus of people. Yeah. Boy, then. Um, 30, approximately 30 on board um, for the third bus amount. Um, for the fourth, I'm not quite sure the amount, but, but still. These have been coming basically um, once a day. And I believe we're at the fourth one that he's dropped off. And basically the way it goes is the people are allowed into the country for asylum. And his thing is to bring them to D.C. to make them an issue for Biden. He's also been making agreements with some of the Mexican governors or the Mexican, I guess, mayors or governors that are near the region. Um, what is going on with this? I mean, is this just trying to show up D.C.? Does this mean anything at all? Is just just a publicity stunt um, for Abbott? I mean, what is the reality of this? And how do you think this basically plays? I mean, on some level, it makes it look like, hey, Abbott is taking a lead on immigration, which is basically illegal. I mean, this is something that's purely within the powers of the presidency. 
Um, do you think this is going to have any kind of bang for its buck, or is this purely just a publicity stunt for Abbott? Well, I think it's a it's a publicity stunt, but I think it's a publicity stunt that comes out of a real frustration on the part of border state governors, um, which you know we've heard about going back for years, predating Abbott, where they felt like they were their concerns just weren't being taken seriously. And, uh, you know, Texans are well aware of that, and all, all, as are, uh, you know, people in New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California. Um, so I think, uh, I think it's going to play well, because even for someone like me, who despises Abbott's politics, uh, you know, I think the dude's got a point. And so, like, if a guy like me thinks the dude's got a point, uh, you know, that's going to... It, it, it seems to me like it's going to resonate. I mean, he look, obviously, no one thinks that in terms of raw numbers, uh, this accomplishes anything. But it's kind of a clever stunt. And it is kind of ridiculous that he feels like he should have to or even feels like he's able to cut deals with, uh, you know, provincial governors in Mexico, uh, you know, basically conducting foreign policy. Um, and the and the and the State Department is allowing him to do that. Yes. The administration doesn't seem to have any way to stop him from doing that. That again, it, you know, it points to a breakdown of sort of order. And it don't seem. To, I mean, it's very weird because it does seem like he's stepping on Biden's toes on this. And you would think that the administration would be serious feelings about it. I mean, you're basically undermining my authority as president to control issues of foreign policy. The notion that a governor is making deals with a foreign government is astonishing. Um, and yet, here we are. Here we are, nonetheless. I want to move into one more thing, the laptop. So Daryl Issa made this point, and I just read the story because this is amazing. Because for the longest time, I kept thinking to myself, if Republicans are only focused on the laptop for the purpose of Hunter Biden, then they are idiots. That the way of dealing with the laptop is basically to use it to crawl your way to Joe Biden, which should be the point. Like, meaning, yes, we're going to talk about Hunter, and yes, we're going to talk about the crack, and yes, we're going to talk about the M&Ms being balanced on his penis. We're going to talk about all that stuff. However, what we're doing this for is because we're trying to draw the public's attention to, hey, Joe Biden has liabilities here. Yes, this part is funny, but when we get into the liabilities of the president, that is not. That is a real issue. And it seems that they are doing that. So right here, U.S. Rep- Republican leader, a lawmaker, Daryl Issa, Issa, um, who currently represents California 50th Congressional District, has shed some light on the ongoing efforts to investigate the matter of the infamous laptop from hell belonging to Hunter Biden's son of U.S. President Joe Biden. During his recent appearance on Fox's Sunday Morning Futures, Issa suggested that Hunter Biden investigation should be allowed, should be followed, quote, all the way to the big guy, and that is something we're going to need a special prosecutor for. In the meantime, we're investigating it. We have the laptop, he added, and the laptop is a treasure trove of obviousness. Obviousness. Um, Ted, 30 seconds on this one. Is this something that is going to cause problems for Joe Biden going forward? There's no question. Uh, this, this, with the investigations that are uh, apace, uh, the looming midterm elections, uh, it just, you know, the, the, the credibility of his supporters in the media in tatters. Yeah, this is a big, big problem for, the, for Biden and more particularly for the Democrats since Biden's not running again uh, in reality. So, yeah, watch this story. It's a big deal. Very cool. And I agree with you on that. Thousand percent agree with you on that. Ted Rawl is an American columnist, syndicated editorial cartoonist, and author. And like I said, one of my favorite people 
who comes and joins us to have a conversation. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I am Manila Chan, the mistress of the middle. The mistress of the middle, Manila Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. And Chan. No, I think it's fine. It's short. Short is subjective. I think you're being a little bit insecure with the short part. It's just like Chan. It's like Chan. It's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. It's just perspective, right? None of it's real. A syllable. Yeah. Should it be two syllables? What makes two syllables better than one? I don't know. It just seems... Well, because I guess Manila, that's three syllables. So it's fine if you just throw Chan back there. Yeah. Because it feels like it like comes out in a particular right. way. But Chan is too quick. But just by itself, is like standalone. It's like, mm. Personally, I think it's subjective. I think it's one of those things where it just sounds a particular way. Somebody else may be like, Chan sounds perfect. Somebody else? Like, the one For syllable sure. needs more. Yeah. But I am perfectly okay with that. I think it sounds perfectly fine. And we, um, yeah, Ted is cool people. I always enjoy the conversations with Ted. He's very affable, easy who, to talk to. Who says they were a New York City taxi cab driver? Who says that? And then, like, you become a famous cartoonist. And I love how he what? says, he was like, yeah, I'm pretty tough, but bullets whizzing by my head when I'm going out to the yeah, car. Yeah, like, what? It's like, dude, that's not a toughness issue. That's a life issue. Like, what, what did you just say? Yeah. Like, like, it's extreme. And, like, to see Eric Adams, like, on the dance floor, and, like, what, like, like, on a Tuesday night. Why are you guys hating on him I, so much for going out there to cut a rug? I'll put it this way. If his city didn't have somebody just got shot in the subway, if his city well, I mean, didn't sure, have but, people bullets whizzing by their heads or people taking a dump on the, the streets. was was pre-New York subway train massacre. When he was dancing like that? Right, it was pre-that. But that's even worse because that means that I, during I the time... Where, I think that's where he caught COVID. Well, I think it's worse because it means during the time that the events were unfolding where people was coming in their heads of us and going to the subway and everything else and he's making his YouTube videos. He's doing the jig. Like, he's, like, spinning on his lips at his dance club. He he was, like, celebrating his, I'll give somebody that, right? Like, you're newly elected in office. You Uh you just won. Uh I'll give you that. I'll Uh give you that courtesy of, like, all right, you're, like, getting down with the people. Uh You're in the club. You know, like, up in the club. It's your birthday. His job is not to be a celebrity. His job is to be mayor. The celebrity aspect of that is secondary to the point of it being mayor, if that makes sense. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just... Yeah, I'll, I'll. Oh, I am hating. I hating I'm not hating time. on that. I'll, I'll give somebody the opportunity to get out there. But see, the, if you are harping about the mask issue mm-hmm. and you're out there clubbing without the mask, like we see everyone here in DC, yes. you know, like ah, oh, mask, 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 and then they're out, you know, having their fancy dinners and clubs and parties or whatever. That is like greatly frowned upon. Yeah. Governor of California, if he wasn't saying that stuff and he was out there. Fine, I'll give him that. I'll give him a chance to party. But if you're out here forcing the rest of us to wear masks and got to do all of this COVID policy, and then you're out there partying, then shame on you. But him, eh, give him a pass. 
okay, fair enough. Okay. One gives up a pass. The other two, I know. no leeway. <laughs> the other so two, no leeway. Let's do this. Let's go into our headlines. In the news, we have in COVID news, if I can get to my COVID news, there we are. In, in an article penned in the New York Times, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who apparently owns ungodly amounts of land at this point during the COVID thing that he was buying up. But he believes the fight against the coronavirus pandemic could have been more efficient and lives could have been saved if scientists focused on developing therapeutics alongside vaccines. Again, something they did do. The billionaire said in the event of a similar pandemic, even if scientists managed to develop a vaccine in 100 days, it would take time to administer it to the population. Also, not everyone who has access to vaccines would choose to take it, making availability of therapeutics crucial, he wrote. Does he know that even if they develop therapeutics, it would also take time for him to administer therapeutics to the rest of the population or to create them in numbers that you can actually dispense them to people who need them? Anywhere you go is where you're at. I don't know. He he has a pretty good, um, we'll call it an assembly line. Yes. With the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah. Or now it's the French Gates Foundation. Is which, it? Oh, they changed the name. Well, because she, yeah, because she, she went back to her maiden name, which is French. So the Melinda French and Bill Gates Foundation, um, they're, they've gotten pretty good at streamlining how to get vaccines to people. So, Wait, she went back, she got rid of Gates as her last name? I think I think nowadays she's going by French Gates, which is very confusing because yeah, you're like is. French doors, yeah. French Gates. I think she's going by either French Gates or just French these days because it seems like the more she learns about her husband's... Um, philandering uh-huh. and closer relationships uh-huh. with uh, one Jeffrey Epstein, the more she's like, oh, I, I don't know this. if I, I'm going to get away from this and not be a Gates. I'm just going to go back wow. to French. That's, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, rough, that's kinda, man. That's gross, man, when you start finding out. Stuff like that about your husband. Yeah, your ex, your husband of 20-whatever years. By the way, and, are they still married? They're not married? Um, I think the divorce is either just got finalized or, or pretty close. To being finalized. Yeah, because in California, it takes about a couple months. Okay. Unless, you know, something really egregious, the courts will grant you an expedited divorce. But um, they have, obviously... This, a, this husband had a dead hooker in the trunk. It's like, okay, that, yeah, that, ma- well, ma'am, that, right. we can give her All right, ma'am. Yeah. 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 You, you, you <laughs> yeah, we're going to end this today, yeah. But in this case, they have gajillions of dollars. Um, I don't necessarily think they're fighting over it. Uh, I think they're being pretty amicable. But I think she wants to fade off into the background the more... Um, information we find out about Bill and his relationship with Epstein. Wow. So Very she creepy. was not happy about that. I don't blame her. I don't know how anybody that would be happy with that one. Let's keep going. In national news, we have U.S. Representative lawmaker Dara Issa, who currently represents California's 50th congressional district, has shed light on the ongoing efforts to investigate the matter of the infamous laptop from hell belonging to Hunter Biden's son of U.S. President Joe Biden. During his recent appearance on Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures, Issa suggested that Hunter Biden's investigation should be followed, quote, all the way to the big guy, unquote, and that some of it is going to be or need a special prosecutor. Quote, in the meantime, we're investigating it. We have the laptop and the laptop is a treasure trove of obviousness, unquote. It is a scandal that um, Twitter was allowed to basically silence that story and that all of those other media executives act like the New York Post story was false. Scandal, especially considering it was just before the election. Two weeks. Two weeks before the election. And the entire point of it was we don't want information to come out that may 
adversely affect Joe Biden in this election because Donald Trump is a clear and present threat, et cetera, et cetera. Because, well, it also, you know, they look back at 2016 mm-hmm. and Hillary the Hillary Clinton stuff. That's right. So they were like, oh. We can't let this happen again. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's just tamp down the story and and let the people know what they already know and that's good enough and we'll do it right after the election. But they didn't even do it right after the election. I mean, they took a while for the for the longest time all of those publications were like this is a BS story, the story isn't real, can't cooperate it. And it's like, dude, it's very simple to cooperate. Hey Hunter, is this your laptop? Yay or nay? Is this email real? Yay or nay? Very easy to cooperate. Right. And New York Times had zero issue cooperating it a year later when they're like, hey, no issue. Everything's great. Ugh. It's just aggravating because what they did was they decided the public doesn't need to know this. At whether, that time. At that time. Whether it was true or need false, the public doesn't need to know. Somebody made a choice in regards to what the public should use in its mind space when it goes to pick one person or the other. And they don't like the way the public came around and said, we don't like Clinton. It's aggravating because it's one of those things where, look, this is true, legitimate information that the public should have to make a choice on who they want, Trump or Biden. And it doesn't matter if you think this information is irrelevant. That's You think it's irrelevant, but you want Biden to get elected. There are many people who look at that and think the president is corrupt. The president has entanglements. The, co- the president is compromised. The president is compromised. And they're not wrong for that. I guess that's the point. That's the aggravating part of it. Somebody made a choice. Shane was calling it a soft coup. That's too strong, but definitely it is something where they were trying to keep Biden in office and the media was taking a, perspe- a specific perspective to do so. Aggravating stuff. Let's keep going. On Friday, Florida's Department of Education announced the rejection of 54 math textbooks over the presence of prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies, including critical race theory. I want to know how I want to know CRT what that is too. Yeah, is I want to know. Math. I want to know. I want to know too. I'm curious myself. Last year, Florida's Department of Education banned CRT. The department described their review process as transparent, whatever, but did not name the textbooks or highlight passages that failed the review. We're totally transparent, but no, we're not going to tell you what basically happened. Ukraine is ready to fight for the Florida's land for 10 years. The country. Vladimir Zelensky said in an interview with CNN, quote, we want to liberate our country to take back what belongs to us. We may be fighting with the Russian Federation for 10 years to take back what is ours. We may choose this path. Zelensky said he urged the West to speed up arms deliveries to Ukraine. Quote, we need the equipment today or tomorrow, not within the next two or three months, Zelensky added. And of course, from Russia's part, they basically warned the United States and NATO nations there could be unpredictable consequences if you keep sending arms in this country like this and everything is fair game everything's fair game and of course we've seen british um, troops captured or can't call them british troops but basically let's say mercenaries captured and of course there are several mercenaries that are basically there russia gave very specific numbers in regards to what they believe is on the ground including the remaining force that is in the steelworks place i think they said around 400 mercenaries left in steelworks in mariupol Let's keep going. Over 20 Israelis and Palestinians were wounded as a result of several outbreaks of violence in the vicinity of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem on Sunday, according to the AFP. As the media outlets point out, points out, the results of these clashes put the number of wounded since Friday when Jewish Passover holiday started amid the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan at over 170. The story is mind-blowing on some level. The Yemeni president... Tomorrow. Hmm? I think we're going to discuss this tomorrow with a guest. Yes. The Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this has been big. This has been bubbling up over the last several days. 
and I don't think we had the opportunity to hit it yet. The Yemeni president stepped down under pressure from Saudi Arabia, the Wall Street Journal reported Sunday, citing Saudi and Yemeni officials who added that the ex-Yemeni president is now being held under de facto home arrest in Riyadh and has limited communications with the outside world. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman allegedly handed, handed Hadi a, quote, written order, unquote, during talks in Riyadh, which outlined provisions for the delegation of powers to be the newly created council. Prince Mohammed told Hadi that other Yemen leaders had agreed to it and it was time for him to relinquish power, according to officials. Hey, I think it's time for you to basically step down. And by the way, the people in your country also agree with me. So, you know, there's that. So we're just going to keep you under home arrest while right. this basically takes place. You're not harmed. You're not harmed. You get McDonald's, all the good stuff. Bill Gates from the tries. Uh, but we need you to basically stay here. That's a, that's outrageous. That is outrageous. And I got to be honest, I don't know who goes to negotiations with this guy at this point after having somebody deboned in a um, in a Turkish embassy. Right. And you, have you seen them making jokes about Joe Biden? No, I'll, I'll tell you real quick, though, back on, on I know you're making a joke about that, but yeah. um, I'll tell you who goes to make deals with MBS. Hmm. Jared Kushner. Yes, he does. Big yes, deals. Does. Yes, he does. Seven, yes, he does. Seven, eight figure deals. Yes, he does. So. Yes, he does. Somebody does. You got you got friends when you got lots of money. So it doesn't matter if you are, you know, a, a, bone, a guy. bone saw <laughs> Hacktivist, literally. <laughs> right. Um, doesn't matter. Bone because saw hacktivist. You are a crown prince of a very rich country. and Backwards totalitarian state country, but you're right. You got oil. It's very rich. And you're, and you're very rich. Yeah. It's very rich. People give that a pass. It's like, hey, get a guy to bone in a bone saw. But yeah, but he has so much money. Did you, yeah, do you remember rich. when Trump was confronted on this and Trump looked around and says, was this guy American? And the guy was like, well, ish. He's like, how much money we get from Saudi Arabia? Right. He's like, mute. Yeah, right. <laughs> he didn't oh, even mute it. Funny. He just turned it. That's the guy <laughs> in the middle of a press conference. How much money Saudi Arabia's given? Is he a citizen? Man. That's what it boiled down to, right? How like, much money are we does getting? Does it matter if he was a citizen? Like, a dude got hacked up at a consulate. America first, Manila. I, I guess. America first. I guess. I guess America so. first. Okay. <laughs> America first. And look, whatever you want to think about that. There's some people that look at that and say, Trump, applause. Because for their standpoint, as gross as it is, they look at Trump as saying, well, look, Trump is looking for America's perspective. Look, I think that's I think that's grim. I think you can go with an American perspective without having stuff like that and backing people like that. But you will get people in a country that says, finally, we keep sending all of these money to all of, all of these other countries. We have all of these people that are sick and ill and impoverished. We have people um, take dumps on the streets in Europe. Maybe we should focus on this country. Meaning, I get their framing, even though I think the framing is somewhat jaded. But some of those people would look at, especially Trump supporters, Trump is looking out for America. I think I think they're wrong, but that's the way they look at it. If you look at Saudi Arabia's interference right now in Yemen. Yes. Um, it uses interference. You've been a war. <laughs> They've been waging I mean, a I mean, war I mean, for like eight years. Patty being like, bro, I think your time is up. Yes. Go home. Yes. That's literally what happened. It just... Bro, your time's up. Go home. We're gonna lock you there for a little bit. You're good, um, but we're gonna we're gonna you know reshuffle yes. your your government pretty much because the Houthis are still a thing. Yes. So we're gonna we're gonna reshuffle. Like, you just go home. We're just trying to help you out. Right. Just trying but to help this you is out. this is. I mean, obviously war, but this is the kind of interference I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, where I'm not gonna put this solely on Trump and Jared Kushner to be like, hey, we're buds with MBS. 
because it's every American president. Yes. That's yes. like rubbing elbows, dancing, you with know, the with the swords. With the exception of Biden. Well, yet. Yet. Not yet. I mean, it doesn't seem like that relationship is being mended. I mean, and Blinken went there and apparently was apologizing and basically trying to get on their good graces. Yeah, nobody is going to mess with MBS. No U.S. president it seems. has the gall to mess with Mohammed bin Salman. And and I'm going to guess, because it's not only just the oil, uh-huh. I'm going to guess there are lots of Hunter Biden-esque laptops out there. And there are a lot of Saudi spies out there. And a lot of Saudi, Saudi spies that know a lot of intel. I put it this way. Considering that they are joking an American president in a comedy something I've never seen Saudi Arabia to do. I would say that they I know, are, that was hilarious. It was hilarious, Props but, that, but that's kind of my point. <laughs> you have a totalitarian state, and in that totalitarian state, they're making fun of somebody who's supposed to be an ally of the United States. Are they really allies if they're willing to make fun of them like that? Yes. Meaning this isn't, this isn't like Germany, where you have these kind of irreverent um, comedies I that know. make fun of everything. This no. is a totalitarian state where they chop heads and but crucify no, no, here's people. Here's the thing. I'm looking at this on the positive note that, mind you, both both people, even the person that played Kamala Harris was a, a man. Yeah. So, I mean, we should note that it's still men doing all the parts. Oh, I'm not talking about that part. But, I am talking but, about that specifically. You no, know, the fact that they're they making... They never did it That they're mocking. Exactly. You no, know, the fact that they're even, like, allowing laughter is like, oh, yes, it's a step in the right direction. No, they're people. Of course they laugh. It's a, no, I mean, the fact that, that it's being shown on their national television network no, is, I, is, is a big deal. That, yes, massive deal. But it's a massive deal for geopolitical reasons. That's what I'm getting at. But oh, yeah, there's two parts to that, right? Yeah, they've never saying, done that before. I'm saying for their culture, I think that's a big deal. The fact that they they are... Mocking unquote, the U.S. president. Well, quote, unquote, allowing women to drive. And then now, a few months later, now you have, you know, this irreverent kind of sat, satire comedy. You are totally missing what I'm saying. No, no, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but I'm they, saying in addition to that, for yeah. their culture, I think... If you're if you're a Saudi citizen, yeah. you're starting to see a small, ever slight shift well, in your own culture. But they still laugh. I mean, they still joke. They still people. It's just a different kind of right. But this kind is what I'm saying. I'm I'm, I'm talking about it from their own cultural perspective Context. in in the Saudi world. If you're a Saudi little girl, if you're a Saudi person born in the late 1900s, you are seeing the cultural evolution. Yeah. So speaking as you know, if if you were somebody there. Um, but yes, from the outside world, I see what you're you're getting at. Is that, that is a it's deal. the Saudis, you know, slapping Biden in the face and being like, "Ha ha, what are you going to do about it?" Yeah, that's a massive deal. That's all I'm saying. It's something they've never done. What are you What are y'all going to do about it, White House? It's something I've never Jim done. Saki, what you got to say about that? It just that? gets very clearly this breakdown in relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, especially this totalitarian state is now making fun of the U.S. president, and they're just anybody. I, I just I have no belief that this would have been allowed prior. That's all. Like, they would have never done this under Trump. Well, no, they're too close. They're friends. Exactly. They're exactly. way too close. But like you said, all other U.S. presidents were lockstep with Saudi oh, Arabia. Yeah. And so it's like, they are basically hitting Biden. And then it's like, what does this mean between Saudi Arabia and China? What does it mean for um, the petrodollar in general? And what happens if the petrodollar is no longer the petrodollar by itself, where you have like the yuan and this other stuff basically being used in coordination with it? Like, that's a big deal. Like, the fact that they're doing that matters, especially from the standpoint of the U.S. going forward. The petrodollar is one of those bricks in the wall of this, you know, dollar hegemony. 
if it's being, if there's competition, what does it mean? What does it mean? I don't know. I'm fast. I get fascinated by this stuff. I get so enamored by it. But look, let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Um, Manila, Chan, um, Manila Chan is with us. We have Mark Frost. We're going to get to this notion of taxes. And we're going to go to this idea of Mark is going to give us various factoids and everything else. This should be a very interesting conversation. But let's do this. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan. I'm joining you out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join us in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And of course, I should have said this earlier, earlier, share this video. We're nearly at 500 again, so definitely put it out there. But let's do this. Let's go to our guests. We have the one and only Mark Frost, economist, consultant, professor, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, superthenarian. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good. I need to come up with some more adjectives. I know. Oh, no. It's not enough adjectives. We need more. We need more. Um, but today is tax day. And Manila um, mentioned taxes as one of the stories. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. It is tax day indeed. Manila. Mark, bear with me. I'm going to rattle off some tax factoids. And then we'll get into the discussion here. So the U.S. is expected to bring in close to $3.74 trillion in tax revenue this year. That's according to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, About half of that comes from individual income taxes, and one-third of that comes from payroll taxes, which include Social Security and Medicare taxes. Now, that's an increase of revenue of nearly $500 billion over 2021. Federal spending is projected to be close to $5.08 trillion for fiscal year 2022. So with, with tax revenue expected to be less than $3.74 trillion, that means there's a deficit of $1.34 trillion. $1.2 trillion will go to Social Security benefits. $973 billion will go towards Medicare. And the federal government is projected to spend around $765 billion on defense of our tax dollars. That's a little more than... Half the combined $1.45 trillion set aside. Mark, you got to tell us what this is. Federal discretionary spending. So, I mean, that's we're talking in trillions and billions here. I think people just can't even wrap their minds around this when they're doing their taxes and, you know, hoping to get a couple thousand dollars back, which was their money to begin with. It's not, it's not a refund. Like, yeah, it's a refund, but people think it's like, oh, a gift. No, you loaned the U.S. government your money. They leveraged it and used it to... Do whatever, build a wall, um, finance, you know, their their office decor, whatever it is. Um, but tell us, with all this money being thrown out there on tax day, what exactly is federal discretionary spending? Where does that go? Uh, discretionary spending is uh, exactly what it actually is, is anything that's not an entitlement. 
So if you just order the, uh, so if you made a pie chart, for instance, of uh, federal spending, first and foremost is Social Security. Second is Medicare. Third is Medicaid. Fourth is interest on the debt, which might become third if rates keep increasing and the price of treasury bonds keeps falling, uh, as the Fed is trying to make them do. Uh, so discretionary spending is anything that is not connected with a privileged IOU that is an entitlement. You, you're entitled to receive Social Security by statute. You're entitled to receive uh, a SNAP, food stamps, if you qualify. You're entitled to Medicare benefits. You're entitled to Medicaid benefits. So these are entitlements that we've already said we're going to spend the money on. So they're, they're non-discretionary. We don't have a choice of whether we're going to pay them or not because we've already promised people to pay them. So here's the thing that I think most non-economist kind of people don't understand is the discretionary part of the budget is tiny relative to the whole budget. And this is why political machinations of we're going to balance the budget are just nonsense because I don't even think it can be done because if you, if you got rid of the entire discretionary part of the government, got rid of the military, got rid of the courts, got rid of everything that's, that's discretionary, you still haven't balanced the budget. Really good point. So without touching, I mean, it's, you, still have a, you still have a budget deficit. And uh, it's been that way for decades. And I don't see any way of getting out of it until we get out of our addiction to borrowing money. Is this issue of raising taxes in order to kind of mine the gap? Well, raising taxes is itself a very difficult thing to predict because when you raise taxes, people's behavior changes. In fact, some taxation is used to specifically change people's behavior. Right. Whether it's electric vehicle or whether it's this or that, but cigarette tax. Yeah, exactly. And so the problem with taxes is, you know, there, you can't even say what taxes are. So if you make $500,000 a year, taxes to you are probably income taxes. That's the ones that you really worry about. But if you're uh, the person I like to talk about a lot, especially with inflation, if you have a family of three or four and, and, you, have a, a, and you have the median income, then the highest taxes you pay are not income taxes. You probably don't pay any actual U.S. income taxes, but you pay other taxes such as sales taxes, local taxes, payroll taxes, and these taxes for a good 45% of Americans are, are the taxes that they pay. And the problem with them, from my perspective, is they are regressive, meaning that poorer people pay a higher rate in uh, their payroll taxes than wealthier people. If you make half a million dollars a year, what you actually pay for your Medicare and your uh, Social Security uh, FICA taxes is relatively small in proportion to your income. If you make the median income, family income, if you make 60000 a year, your payroll taxes are a significant uh, portion of your tax bill. And for about almost half of all Americans, their entire tax bill is all these taxes that are, have nothing to do with income taxes because they don't pay income taxes. They pay all these other taxes, which just sucks them dry. I mean, everybody sees it. I mean, I, it, it, it's always interesting. 
as a professor to see a, a student come back after they get their first job and they're like, dude, I didn't know they were going to take this much out of my check, you know, and it sort of changes their politics. I'm curious from your standpoint, how should they do it then? I mean, because to me, for example, we're having this conversation about the wars. Well, the U.S. has gone into one country after the next. And oftentimes we use proxies and everything else. But if we're talking about Syria, if we're talking about Iraq. Well, we actually put troops in Iraq. We actually spent money. I mean, it was trillions of dollars. I think it was like eight or nine trillion dollars that we ended up spending on that war in total. But when Bush was in office and when Bush left. Doesn't even include the opportunity cost. That's just the explicit money that we wrote checks for. Exactly. But Bush didn't raise taxes for that. If anything, he just put it on the, corp- the, the credit card. The war then. Well, I guess my point is it was like $7 trillion that he put on the deficit for when Obama took office. How does that work? Like, how do you engage in these large military conquests with dumping all of this money, all of this munitions and everything else, and yet you don't pay for it? How does that work? I can answer that really simply. 1913. What, the First World War? Nope. 19, that was 1917. 1913 was uh, two big things happened in American history. Uh, one was the 16th Amendment, which allowed uh, the federal government to tax incomes without uh, without apportionment. That is, so the, the federal government's always had the power to tax incomes, but if they did, they had, they, they had to equally proportion out whatever tax they, they collected and give it to the states on a population proportional basis. So this is Woodrow Wilson. Yes, exactly. During the Wilson administration, in my opinion, worst president we ever had. But uh, in 1913 was the National Banking Act. Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve. That's what it was. Okay. That, that took us off the gold standard. And for almost the entire history of our country, the price of gold was $20.50 an ounce. And as uh, soon as that law was passed and it went into implementation, the price of gold floated. Uh, and it floated so bad, they, they actually banned the personal holding of gold uh, during the FDR, FDR administration. And so, so to answer your question, what enables a country like the United States to go off and do all these foreign wars? How, how can they afford it? Because we're not really a good, we're not really an empire in the sense of, of a classic empire. We don't go conquer countries, make them citizens, incorporate them into our Ourself, we're not an empire. We are a we're a hegemonic power, power, but we're not we're not an empire. And so, what enables us to do these things that goes off and spends a fortune on Iraq? And in in my view, I uh, the average Iraqi is worse off today than he was before uh, Saddam Hussein was out. Sure, I have any love for Saddam for Saddam Hussein. But if you look at how the people are actually living today compared to how they were before, most people there will tell you, yeah, the guy was a thug. He was horrible. But women went to school. Right. You know, you could have a business. You could dance. You could, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And so what allows the United States to go do the things that it does is its hegemonic power. We can print money, and we've been able to do it historically. And the only country that's been able to do it because of that hegemonic power, is that we don't really pay the full cost of that inflation because so many countries, either officially or unofficially, peg themselves to the U.S. dollar. That's why when we have inflation, the whole world has inflation, because they can't let, they can't let their dollar holdings just fall because their, their country 
their entire economic system is so intertwined with dollars, it's very difficult to divorce it. So if we have an inflation sneeze, then the entire world gets a cold, so to speak. And that's the nature of printed money. It's, it's the, the Federal Reserve has always accommodated the Treasury, with maybe one exception, and even that is debatable. So what happens is the United States Treasury wants to buy stuff. Just pick whatever you want to say. They want to, they want to borrow a trillion dollars to go do a war. Well, the Treasury issues bonds, and the world either buys them or they don't buy them. If the world doesn't buy them, then the Federal Reserve uses its authority to buy them on the secondary market, which increases their price, which reduces their yield, uh, which is good for the country, right? So that's what the country is generally trying to do there. And uh, when the National Banking Act was, was being debated, it, this was actually stated that the, the people who were opposed to it were saying this is going to lead us into uh, foreign war after foreign war because we're going to have the money to do it. And uh, unfortunately, since 1913, the United States has had a, a culture from a governmental perspective of living on borrowed money. And unlike an individual that lives on their credit card for a while, uh, where you have to pay the fiddler eventually, governments can print their own money and they also have police power. So ask yourself, why do people buy American treasury bonds? Because they know that the United States has police power and it can force the next generation of workers pay taxes. And it's the ability, it's that police power to force people to pay taxes that makes treasury bills worth anything. Right. And, and Congress doesn't have to hold themselves accountable because they can just you know, put up the dog and pony show, the smoke and mirror show about raising the debt ceiling. You'll have a couple Republicans get angry and huff and puff and get out. And then on the 11th hour, they're going to come back, get together, and the debt ceiling magically is raised. Some backroom deals have been made. Somebody's scratching somebody's back somewhere, and I'll get you next time, buddy. And, and, and then all the meanwhile, you have I know this is not a silver bullet, but it's it's just one of the multi-pronged problems that we have with the U.S. tax system and, and the tax code as we know it from, like you said, in 1913. What about, of all the talk, um, Mark, of the Buffett rule? The Buffett rule, uh, obviously inspired by billionaire Warren Buffett, would require millionaires to pay a minimum tax rate of 30 uh, percent. This would guarantee that the wealthy would not pay less than that share of income in taxes um, and kind of off it to the middle-class families. Uh, they project that they would raise $72 billion over the next 10 years. That's really not a whole lot of money, but is that better than nothing? Uh, no. If, if, you, if you seize the wealth of every billionaire in the country, you still have a deficit. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're beyond the point of just, you know, being hungry and eating the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. There is, the Laffer curve is very real. There comes a tax rate that becomes so high that your tax revenues actually go down. And just do a thought experiment. What if government taxed income at 100%? I mean, just kind of think about it. What if taxes were 100%? Well, I mean, n nobody would have anything 
left to eat. There would be zero discretionary income among individuals. So if government didn't feed people, they would have nothing to eat. And therefore, since they had nothing to eat and they weren't doing anything, they wouldn't have any taxes. So, uh, so there does come a point at which tax rates become so high that, uh, they actually retard tax revenues. So let's say tax revenues are already 60%, uh, on a marginal rate. Does it help to push them to 90%? No, it does nothing. It, it actually retards revenues. But if income tax rates are only 10%, does it help a lot to raise them to 20? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, each economy is a little bit different. But in the United States, historically, uh, we have not used high marginal tax rates to raise revenue. What we've done them, what we have done with them is we've choked off aggregate supply purposely because of them. So in World War II, for instance, marginal tax rates were 95%. The government knew they weren't going to raise any income from it, but it choked off consumption. People wanting to buy a yacht or a car or this or that uh, uh, found it price prohibitive to do so because they wanted all those materials to go into the war effort because World War II was paid for by printed money. And that's just a fact. Uh, same as World War I. Uh, and that was, the, that was the, the fear of when that was going on was that it was going to turn the United States into an empire, that we were going to lose our isolationist, if you will, uh, heritage, and we were going to become uh, embroiled in foreign war after foreign war. And they were right. Uh, and I think uh, they were right uh, in that regard. Explain something to me. Eccles. Oh, please. No, finish. Well, I was just going to say Mariner Eccles, if anybody wants to do a Google, Google search on him, you know, he had to, he had to deal with, he was the, I mean, if there's one person that's sort of kind of in charge of the modern day uh, post-World War II system, it would be Mariner it would be Mariner Eccles, who basically, uh, he really engineered the post-World War II monetary stature of the United States. Explain how the reserve currency fits into um, to all of this. Because there's, my biggest concern is that weaponization of the dollar, anytime somebody has a weapon, and that weapon is a dominant weapon, oftentimes other countries are going to find ways to mitigate it. If the U.S. or if the dollar is not used as a weapon, no issue. As long as we can have the thing as, a, um, let's say, an independent actor in the way that it responds, yes, we get advantages from it. But no, it's not necessarily used to, let's say, hit or attack anybody else. No issue. The moment it becomes a use as a weapon, people will look for a way to mitigate the fact that this guy or this particular country has that weapon. And so you get many countries that look around and say, hey, if we run afoul of the United States, they can take our resources in the way they took either Russia or for that matter Venezuela. You're talking about the UK. Um, not to mention. If we run afoul of the U.S., they can take us off of SWIFT. They can decide to um, hurt uh, local economies and everything else. How can we be a sovereign nation if we don't, in fact, have control over these items? And so when you, I hear stuff like Saudi Arabia getting closer to China with this kind of um, yuan, uh, what is it called, the petrol yuan, and they're basically willing to float this as a particular thing. I see Saudi Arabia making jokes of the U.S. president, something it didn't necessarily do prior. And where China is investing billions of dollars into Saudi Arabia in order to make that relationship that much closer. What happens um, if we are no longer the reserve currency as things kind of move on and we get this kind of new security architecture of the world and many of these other countries decide to move on to something else? What happens here? What happens is disaster because one half 
actually a little over one half of all U.S. dollars are held outside the United States. That's uh, just a fact. So if we think about, just think about that in common sense. So half of the demand for United States dollars are by non-Americans. Let's just say half of that half goes away. So 25% of that demand goes to some other currency that becomes popular. Well, all of a sudden now, there's less demand for U.S. treasuries, right? We, we just decided there's 25% less demand for treasuries because there's a substitute good in town. Let's call it the petrol, let's call it the petrol, the petrol yuan. And so there's, there's, there's more demand for that, which means there's less demand for U.S. dollars. Well, remember, this is kind of a more complicated finance concept, but I can make it very simple. There's an inverse relationship between the yield of a bond and its price. And that's a very important thing to think about. So if the demand for anything, if the demand for green beans goes down, all, you know, all other things being equal, we expect the price to drop. In bonds, if the price drops, the yield goes up by definition. You know, if you buy, a, if, if I loan you $1,000 and you agree to pay me back a, and you agree to pay me back 1100 then I just charged you a 10% return. If you pay me back 1500 then I just charged you a 50% return or a 50% interest charge. And so that's the nature uh, uh, of that system there. Wait, I, I guess your point is if we lose, let's say if those countries no longer, if it's no longer reserve or there's something else, the fact that that demand drops, then the price of the money also drops, basically. Well, uh, no. Actually, what I'm saying is the price of borrowing money increases because there's an inverse relationship between the price and the yield of a bond. So think about it from the issuer bond's perspective, the United States government's perspective. We're, we're wanting to borrow money from people, and we do it by saying, loan us, give us $1,000 now, and we'll give you $1,000 back plus $50 a month. Uh, or excuse me, fifty dollars every six every six months. Let's say, okay. Well, if the price of bonds increase, well, that means you have to pay a higher interest rate on that because the yield. Because when you when you when you decrease the price of of, of a bond, its yield goes up. Where yield to a bar, to an investor is yield. Yield to a borrower is interest expense. Earlier, I said that interest on the national debt was the fourth largest single item, uh, or b better said, single category on the budget list. So if, if our interest rate that we're paying on the money we've borrowed since the inception of the country, if, we're, if that interest rate doubles, then all of a sudden, our budget gets blown up. So, so interest expense could end up being the third or even the second on that list. And we don't have any control over that because when it comes to stuff like that, you either pay your interest payments or you default. It's a binary outcome. You either pay or you're in default. And so if we lose the reserve currency status in, in a significant, doesn't even have to lose it. If, we, if it's diminished in a significant way, the cost of all the borrowing that the United States does will increase dramatically. And 
Imagine if a U.S. president had to go to the American people and say, we need to stop all this borrowing and we're going to, uh, you, you know, we're going to put uh, some thrifty measures in here and we're going to ask Americans to sacrifice for the next generation so we can get this dealt, this debt dealt with. I don't see a politician doing that in the United States. Sure. Sure. I mean, in the sh- before the next generation comes and, and we continually kick this can down the road as we do with with uh, Medicare for all and uh, the talk of UBI. That's I mean, I, I can't imagine that we would be in the position anytime soon in, in this lifetime to actually make UBI or even Medicare for all a, a real thing because of this deficit issue. Am I am I right on that? Because we can't figure out the finances here. Is it possible that we could figure out Medicare for all or, or UBI? Uh, I think if you actually go into the quote unquote uh, socialist literature, you know, for instance, if you just read uh, 1943, one of my favorite economists, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, if you're in the far left and you want a nation of entitlements and you want the high-income people whittled down, and you want the low-income people lifted up a little bit, and you, want, and, and you want more equity, let's say. That's the buzzword these days. Well, if you want that, then you don't really have to pay for it in the beginning because the handbook says the first thing you do is you bring on inflation. And what inflation does if you're massively in debt is it lets you pay back your creditors with discounted dollars. Isn't that where we're at now, Mark? I don't know that we're we're certainly begin we're certainly in the beginning of it, but I don't believe we're at the point where there's no return anymore. We're not Venezuela, we're not uh, you know, Weimar, Germany, we're not in risk of hyperinflation, but we are in a serious inflation that's going to get much more serious. And and it's and it and it comes from printing money. Inflation doesn't happen on any kind of systemic basis with w- without uh, increases in the money supply. Milton Friedman said it perfectly. Inflation is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomena. If you double the supply of money, basically all you've done is you've diluted the purchasing power of money by half, and that's the nature of inflation. And so, kind of a socialist playbook. The fascist handbook, call it whatever ism that you know that you want. But the playbook behind this is first of all, bring on inflation. Second, attack the nuclear family. And then third, get people used to having their basic needs supplied by the government. And in that sense, the government is mommy and the government is daddy. And there are people that don't want that. Uh, they they just don't want that sort of life, and uh, and I'm and I'm one of them. <laughs> Mark, I, mean, I would argue we're there. I don't think Russians want it either. By the way, I, having traveled Russia, I don't. My impression of Russian, just basic everyday normal Russians, is they don't like that either. I think it's a middle ground somewhere, right? I mean, I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, the middle. Yeah, you got me in the middle on that one. Yeah, I think there's a middle ground somewhere, right? Like. There are certain things that are considered vital resources that I think the state should have access to or should have more control over. Um, issues of energy production, transportation, mail, et cetera, et cetera. There are other things. I don't want the government creating pencils. Put it that way. You know, like I don't think the government needs to create cars. 
I, like there's certain things that I think the public sector does better. There's certain things I think government does better. Mark? Well, if you want the government to create cars, then you have a Yugo. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mark, thank you for this, man. I always appreciate you joining us. Economist, consultant, professor, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Schumpeternarian, Mark Frost. And I believe you're on Twitter at Frosty Cash, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not on Twitter. You're not on Twitter anymore. You can track me down if they really want to. Uh, I'm not that hard to find. Uh, but yeah, I left Twitter. It's a cesspool. Oh, fair enough. Fair. You left the cesspool. Fair enough. Mark, thank you, my man. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are in that awesome time period, the wrap, the wrap. We're taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And we have Tarif. Tarif. What's going on, my man? Tarif hey, from New Tarif. Orleans. How y'all doing? So far, so good. What's going on, my man? Man, first I'd like to say free jewel and signs. I have yeah, today I gotta go to the VA, so I gotta be on my P, my P's and Q's at the VA in New Orleans of Veterans Affairs. You know, I'm a whistleblower, and them people hate me. Uh, over the weekend, or well, excuse me, Thursday, my Cadillac, my Cadillac converter was stolen underneath my car. Oh no! Catalytic converter. And uh, yeah, catalytic converter, and I. There's a rash of those all over the, a rash of thefts, I should say, of catalytic converters. It's a big thing in Los Angeles. There's there's like whole criminal enterprise jacking people's catalytic converters. Yeah. I didn't know that. Some of my family had that happen, and, and I got to talk into the detective, like I do as a reporter, and the detective started telling me all of this interesting stuff about this. It's criminal enterprise. I just heard from the word of God in my ear that you can sell those for 1500 bucks, basically. Um, it's a lot of the money. materials inside of it. Wow. That's amazing. Um, what else going on, Tarif? Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but okay, here we go. Um, yeah, I'm still depressed because I don't have fifteen hundred dollars. But anyway, um, here we go. But three com- uh, comments. Uh, Gonzalo Gonzalo Lira. Mm-hmm. He's been appearing on um, George Galloway. Um, George, yeah, George Galloway and the Duran. He's he's missing. SBU might have neo nicers. Hopefully, they don't have him. He's missing. My opinion is this dealing with um okay I hope hope I hope everything's all right with him. Oh, my second comment is I'm dealing with um Kim dot com. I've been trying to get in contact with him. He's been talking about WikiLeaks and um Hunter Biden laptop and also Julian Science. I think it'd probably be best for y'all in my opinion to interview him because his Twitter his tweet's been you know been on fire for the past week or so. Um. And my last comment is um, the poison pill. What um, Twitter's doing to themselves to to stay off yeah. Elon Musk. I don't think it's going to work. What Elon Musk is doing, what Alice was talking about over the weekend, Elon Musk is basically putting himself out there as the savior of free speech. Basically, he's using a con artist tactic, right? Making people believe that he's going to take over Twitter. And he might not have the capital to take over. That's why he needed to take on investors like Peter Thiel and everybody else to help him out because $43 billion is a lot. But what this analyst said that the best thing what he can do is take 
Twitter market share, basically the people from them, and create his own pack, pla- uh, platform for $25 billion, him, Peter Thiel, and some other people. So it's cheaper to start from scratch. Exactly. And he can take the investors from um, Twitter. From Twitter. Bring them, bring them to um, um, to um, his platform. Ah, you can have straight um, freedom of speech, and that's an idea. Just steal all the investors from Twitter, go launch your own, do it in your vision. The issue is market share, right? Twitter already but has everybody's so much. all right because Twitter's just the fact that it's been yeah. there forever, so everyone's it's just, just there. been there forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right? it's, it's like just, you're just like people would have to leave. Like for example, like Rumble. Like, it wasn't until YouTube basically started acting up before people started to leave Rumble. Rumble. Hi, Rumble. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? Um, so it's that part. I mean, it's so understood. I totally understand why do you want to just basically take it over because it makes more sense. So it's like, okay, we're just going to change the rule set for all of these people that are already on it. Right. It's like, it's like buying a pre-existing house yes. and remodeling yeah. it and yeah. gutting it the way and, and making it the way you right. want because, the you know, the, the bones are already there. The footprint, the floor plan, it's already there. The the pipes and all that, it's already there. It is a lot harder, folks, when you are just buying a barren piece of land, you got to go to the city and get, you know, like submit plans and put pipes in and all this stuff, right? And every, all the electrical work, it's easier to just buy an old crappy house and strip it down, strip it down and then make it your dream house. So I get why Elon Musk would want to do that because yeah, he has the money himself to fund his own independent you know, Twitter-type company, but it's so much easier to just buy a crappy old house and strip it down and down to the studs and make a new yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems like what he's trying to do. Um, look, like I said, if we are dependent upon billionaires for free speech, we've already lost it. I know. By the same token, I accept what he's doing as an individual thing. So, But we have one more. Mark from New York. Mark from New York. What's going on, my man? How's it going, Mark? Uh, good morning. Good morning, Danilo. It's uh, just making acquaintance with you at this first time, but uh, to be brief and be as cogent as possible. Uh, one, with regards to the hope in Musk, be mindful that Musk is known to pump and dump. In other words, buy stock and then cash out. Did the same thing with Bitcoin. He didn't cash out, but he bought a large position, and then, you know, Bitcoin is now down very much. Big Bitcoin fan, but simple to say, Hey, he could talk a good game. And there again, as you said, if, if you're relying on a billionaire, you're already in trouble, right? So I wanted to mention with your earlier two, two guests. One, Mark Frost, I have a big problem with, um, you know, interjecting independent, um, that typical neo, not even lib, it's a, it's a, it's a liberal model of economics more based on the independent party. He's a capitalist. And, uh, and, and it's junk. Um, because when you really drill into it, I could tear it apart on my own. And I'd like to have the time one time to call and just go with him. I told you this before. Give me a chance, Adam, on economics. Now, secondly, um, with regards to your New York Post author, New York Post gave a big endorsement to Eric Adams, the mayor. (laughs) I love that. Go go ahead. No, please. Continue. Adam, I'm a New Yorker born and bred, an American through and through. And I want to make it very clear. This is no tough time for New York. Yeah, we got done. I'm not personal. I do have a, a, a connection with the person. Uh-huh. But I will say this. He's not going to let that happen. He's from my hood. Okay. And he knows how to drill down and he will. Now he's not a policy one, but he's a damn good policeman. Go and get it done. 
and it's not going to be the government. If everybody's afraid of New York, you're not a New Yorker. You haven't, you ain't, you haven't seen anything. I mean, but dude, if, if whether you're a New Yorker or not, whether you're a New Yorker or not, should you be able to go to your house without having bullets whizz by your head? Absolutely. Exactly. And and are you, is it wrong to be concerned about that? Or for that matter, the subways? No, 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 no. Let me clear. You should be concerned. The question, if you've been through the cycles of mayors and you've been through the cycles of crime, this is, this is, this is a piece, this is cakewalk. You're a New York native. So who, who, in your opinion, in recent memory, was the best mayor? There is none. There is none. New York has always had its crime, and we've got new problems. We've got homelessness and insanity. We've got mentally ill in, in, in place out there. Some of them are healthy. They can functional ill. And then you've got the ones that are insane, criminal insane. They're, they're in these shelters because these, these non-governmental entities are making money, these so-called nonprofits. Just Wall Street money transferred over into the nonprofit sector, and they're making hand over fist money with these hotel developments and so forth. And then you got rental rates. Take the macro picture across America. We've not invested in housing. As a result, most of the problems have gone into on the streets. Look at Los Angeles. Look at New York. You talk about catalytic converters being snatched. Yeah, 13. That's what's happening in New York sometimes. It's slowed down. But the ability to effectively police the problem, which is not, I don't want to give it to a sheriff mentality. I will say he does have that. I'm just going to focus on this mayor. He's not a policy one. That's his flaw. He doesn't have the connections you ought to have. He doesn't have the intellectual cadre that he has. His being and partying in New York is a reason because New York has a strong nightlife. That's what New York uh, Mark, we're going to have to close it out, man. I really appreciate the conversation. I enjoyed that call. Yeah, and we're going to have to bring you on when Mark comes on, just for you to um, get it Mark, get Mark it off your chest. Mark. Yeah, Mark versus Mark. Um, but look, I want to thank all of you guys for um, following us. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. I want to thank our engineer, producer. I want to thank all of you. You guys have a phenomenally Bye, awesome Rumbles. day. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Rumbles. Have a good one, guys. We'll talk to you in the morning. Have a safe day. Fault Lines. 